With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Doctor, we're by the seaside. That's where we are. That's all that matters. Aye, but where? Yes, Doctor, we must know. Oh, stop fussing, you two. Come on. Show up, you two. Now, wait a bit. See if there's any buckets of space in the corner. Buckets of space. Is he going to dig the water? No, he wants us to play sandcastle. Sandcastle? Yes. What is he? We had a couple of children. Welcome to the Colton Collective Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Dave A.C. and the Sixth Doctor. Couple of children? couple of children. I don't know whether I like that or not, but the actual fact, one of the children's on the naughty step, yes. Uh, hi everyone, this is Dave AC. Welcome to episode 267 of the Cup and Collective Podcast, but one of the children's on the naughty step. Actually, he's doing a job uh, for his mum. He's, uh, he's doing some tidying up, but will be joining us later. So, welcome to uh, an an episode of the Colton Collective. Uh, apologies for not having a live show uh, just recently, but we did put out uh, a very, very uh, important and exciting interview, and more about that later. Let me just introduce the uh, small number of cast members that we have in the room, and then I will just extend a further welcome to uh, possibly a, a new group of listeners to the Colton Collective. So I'm Dave AC, the co-host Ian will hopefully be joining us later, but in the room uh, is Mike, Mike Randall-Thor, who is in actual fact uh, the third member of our commentary team. We've done 135 commentaries, all available on Zarban as well as on our uh, iTunes feed. Hi, Mike. Yes, I'm the Sober Cab. We've done 137 of those? Wow. 135, I think. Oh, 35. Wow. Either way, wow. Radio. Uh, but <laughs> let Hello, me take the opportunity. Yeah, let me give you the opportunity to mention your show that you run in your own right. Do you want to mention that? Oh, sure. There's uh, Radio Free Camlin, which uh, every Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Eastern time, talk show ID 7402. We have a Friday night trivia over there and. Uh, Pretty much everyone on, on Colton is over there. Uh, we just had our 184th episode over there of a trivia where we, where Kobo was guest hosting. 
So if you want to join in on trivia, feel free to. Every Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Highly successful show indeed, too. Yes. Uh, we are also joined by Mr. Darth Skeptical. Hi, Darth. Hello, good sir. How are you? I'm fine indeed. Good to have you here with us. And uh, we will... Uh, I'm glad that you survived the uh, the, the weather that uh, was approaching your group of islands. And, uh, yep, good to have you back. Oh, Thank you, sir. Also good to have on audio, uh, the uh, we haven't got the Sixth Doctor, but his replacement has uh, arrived just in the nick of time. It's Jeff, the Seventh Doctor. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dave. And it is about time that I'm here, I would say. But I do have one question for you. Is it Yeti or Jetty? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not ready for the Jetty. Yeti. Ah. <laughs> Good comeback, Dave. Okay. Let's see who's with us under the cone. Control. New agent training program. Section 3.5. The Cone of Silence. To activate, simply lower the cone and speak clearly. What? Do not overuse the cone of silence. What? Do not shout in the cone of silence. What? In fact, don't even use the cone of silence. What? It's never worked right. I don't know why we bought it in the first place. The portable cone of silence. What? Yes, and making sandcastles on that very beach are Jedi Justice and Cybob. Play nicely together, boys. Uh, that's all that's currently with us, but we do have some people that have checked out the... Uh, the two stories, just um, from the intro that we played, you might have gathered, uh, you uh, should have recognized uh, the second Doctor's voice there. Episode 267, we're reviewing some classic Who, two missing stories. And there are two, well, they're not anagrams, are they, when they give the initials? But um, we've got Enemy of the World and uh, Web of Fear to discuss. But we may have a little bit of news to cover prior to that. But before I do that, I want to make out and extend a special welcome to what may be a new group of listeners. Um, Ian, the Sixth Doctor, uh, just a, a short while ago, went to Orlando Nerdfest uh, with Meg and his wife to see uh, Steam Powered Giraffe, a, a group that they're extremely uh, fond of, uh, love, and were desperate to see them perform live. And part and parcel of that was to go to the uh, event in Orlando. And uh, they remembered, of course, that Ian had interviewed them. I think it was in December 2013. So those people that are following us uh, that are big fans of uh, uh, Steam Powered Giraffe should know that there is a second earlier interview that they can check out. Um, but... Um, they managed to find a, a room, a little bit of an equi room, it has to be said, uh, but where uh, Ian was able to interview that group. And hopefully those people have uh, found a way to listen to some other of the episodes of this uh, podcast. We're doing Doctor Who today. Uh, next week we'll be starting talking about New Who as season 8 starts and gets underway, uh, possibly for 13, but certainly for 12 weeks, and then a Christmas special um, but we do do other things. We cover fantasy, we cover horror, we cover different genres, we talk about books, we talk about comics and magazines, we talk about um, uh, superheroes, heroes, and uh, any anything that, that comes under what we deem to be uh, cult status, things like Breaking Bad uh, and all sorts of things, Arrow, 
Oh, the list is endless. We've got nearly 470 episodes. Yes, I know it's only episode 267, but um, we've got 135 uh, commentaries in amongst all that. And we've got a number of studio shows interviewing such authors, our editors, should I say, of the mythological dimensions of Neil Gaiman, mythological dimensions of... uh, um, And I was doing so well. Doctor Uh, Who. There you are. How could I not remember that? Missed the lot of dimensions of Doctor Who. Thank you very much indeed for that. And uh, also, of course, we've uh, done interviews with other people that have written uh, different things for Doctor Who. Well, let me uh, just remind those people who are already fans of the Colton Collective, and they may not have caught one of the studio episodes indeed this very interview let me just play a one minute clip now you'll be listening to uh, a recording of a recording so um, hopefully the final uh, listenership of this will uh, be able to understand it but um, listen to the episode which runs for about uh, 45 46 minutes but here's a one minute sample of interview uh, of Ian doing his thing Next question, I guess, is uh, the, the fan reaction. Now, I'm sure coming over here, you were wondering what kind of a greeting you're going to get. You know, what's the fan base like? Hopefully, you were pleasantly surprised. Yeah, we didn't know what to expect. We were like, this is a festival. We don't really do a festival circuit, but it turned out to be kind of more of a hybrid. You know, it has a lot of music, yeah. but it still feels pretty familiar with the convention convention stuff we do. But the fans have been very welcoming. I mean. Most of them haven't ever seen us in person, so the energy is just off the wall. Yeah. Yeah, it was right. pretty intimidating the first first day for me. I was I just couldn't. It's like whoa! I was not expecting the the response. Full pan, our panel was brimming people. Yeah, I mean we've done we do a, some conventions that would repeat. So we've been to Chicago twice. We've been to Michigan multiple number of times through the last people three getting years. Sick of us. But then we, we've never been to Florida, so we were pulling in a lot of people from around Florida that we've never actually have had access to before. So, yeah, they just, they, they're eating us alive here. It's nice. Yeah. It's uh, refreshing. The things I was discussing with my wife. Uh, and that was at uh, Orlando Nerdfest, and that ran from uh, 7th of August to the 11th. And um, currently the weekend that's just gone by, um, the guys have been at, um, it's called Air Annie Jam, A-N-I Jam. That was the 16th to the 17th. Um, and uh, their next uh, stint is in Canada, um, on Canada, uh, Fort George, and that's September the 13th, and then September the 27th, they're in Seattle at Steamposium. So um, that's Steam Powered Giraffe. You can find lots of things. They have a um, um, uh, steampoweredgiraffe.com. They have a page on um, the... uh, Facebook and the Orlando Nerdfest, or one word, OrlandoNerdfest.com. So um, uh, check those guys out. Ian and uh, Megan really enjoyed that. Uh, if you look at their Facebook banners, they're both proudly showing off pictures that they had taken with them. Uh, they're classed as a sort of a pantomime band. Uh, that's their own definition of uh, their style of their music. So. Um, Thank you for listening and hopefully you'll check out some of our episodes as we're joined on audio by Willis Girl. Let me see if Willis Girl has um, 
able to speak just yet as I'm judging. Oh, yeah. Can you hear me right oh, now? Excellent. Yep, yeah, you are well in time. We haven't started the topic. We delayed the start somewhat. We were hoping that Ian, who's not yet joined us, would be here by now, but you're most welcome. And um, we're just going to cover some news items, a couple of sad pieces of news, and uh, then we're going to talk about some of the uh, things that have been happening in the world of Doctor Who and around the web before talking about the two classic stories, uh, Enemy of the World and uh, Web of Fear. But for that, um, let's get to the news. Okay, uh, Darth, uh, would you take that uh, item that we talked about on on DW Magazine? Oh, <clears throat> well... Unless you've anything else to add as well. Yeah. Well, before I do that, I suppose we should talk about some other things that are kind of happening. Uh, one is that, um, you know, the Doctor Who friendly host of the Late Late Show is going to be moving on later in the year, and it looks like we're going to get him uh, replaced with somebody else who is Doctor Who friendly, and that is... It seems as if James Corden is being lined up to be the new host, which will be an interesting thing since not that many Americans probably know who James Corden is. Uh, but there is a chance, uh, if you don't know James Corden, but of course if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do because of his appearances in Doctor Who. Still, if you don't know him, um, one of his, maybe even the funniest thing that he's ever done is, is now increasingly available in the U.S. on streaming sites, and that is The Wrong Man's, not The Wrong Men, but The Wrong Man, with an S at the end of it, is um, uh, available on most major streaming sites, except, of course, for Netflix. Uh, so if you have um, Hulu, and the, and the great thing is you don't need Hulu Plus for this. You can just have Hulu regular, so you don't need to be a paid member of Hulu. You can, you can search for it and see that... Um, six-episode miniseries, which is really just devastatingly funny. Um, so I encourage people to do that. And, of course, if the deal does go through and, and he becomes the regular host of um, The Late Late Show, I guess we're going to be in for some more Doctor Who-related um, interviews, even though we really should be getting some before Craig Ferguson leaves, um, especially since, basically, Peter Capaldi is one of his oldest friends, and has already been on the show, I think the expectation is that somehow uh, Capaldi might have sneaked in a little interview uh, on the Late Late Show uh, last week, maybe. Um, but if not that, I think Ferguson still has until more or less the end of the year. So there might well be a chance for um, Capaldi to come back, and I'm sure that he would, given his personal ties to... Craig Ferguson, they being, of course, uh, basically the same age and having been in a band together uh, back in the day, back in Scotland. So hopefully that'll show up. Because if if but if you can't wait for that, there is a um, uh, an interview between them on the Late Late Show from like 2009 that you can easily find on YouTube, which is pretty funny. But I think it would be even more funny now. Um, but uh, we'll see how that works out. So other things that have gone on, of course, we're in the thick of the uh, and yes, oh, the thick of the deliberate of the Doctor World Tour, World Tour, which has been, uh, you know, from my perspective, has been awfully fun. 
Um, and I think it seems to have been a success. I'm, I'm really glad that the um, fans in Korea were validated because, of course, you know, Korea has been a particular friend to Doctor Who in its modern incarnation. And, uh, it, you know, Doctor Who won the equivalent of a Korean international Emmy in 2009 that Phil Collinson and the old production team um accepted and it's great to see uh so many dark two fans in korea just really being enthusiastic and um getting their just due really because they, they they've been great friends to the um show and uh that that particular leg was the one that maybe interested me the most but there was some awfully good stuff coming out of sydney uh last week and of course new york later in the week and today in fact probably as we're speaking right now um, the Mexico event is happening, and in a couple of days, I guess the tour ends, unfortunately, in um, in Brazil. Um, but just judging from the few contacts that I have in Brazil and, and, and seeing what kind of traffic is going on there, they are beyond excited. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous, the electricity that seems to be in the air in Rio. And I think, although it's sad that the tour will be ending, I think it will be a glorious place to end it. Um, and to confirm over these next two days, you know, how important Latin America really is to the Doctor Who franchise and to the BBC, you know, more broadly. Um, I, I can't tell you how exciting this part. In fact, it almost is more exciting to see this two-week period than to see the new series of Doctor Who, in a way, to me. Because this, to me, is sort of confirmed that there is actually an interest in um, the non-English-speaking parts of the world for Doctor Who. And nascent as it may be, it is still full of energy and uh, something to be explored and, and delighted in, really. if you're, Especially if you're an old-school Doctor Who fan, to see this kind of thing happening... Um, it's 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 really heartwarming, and, and in a way, it doesn't matter whether this series is great. Um, this is sort of the, as it were, the icing on the cake from the 50th anniversary year to me, uh, because that was all about proving, yes, we can show this thing globally, uh, but now what, what's happening is more or less showing that it's not just a flash in the pan, it's not just that one-off episode, it is rather that Doctor Who fandom is alive, actually, in these uh, varied parts of the world, which I think is awfully exciting. Uh, one place, though, that um, Doctor Who may not be so alive is in the publication of various magazines. Uh, there have been some um, figures that have come out that are particularly disheartening to Doctor Who adventures. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Doctor Who adventures is sort of the kids version of Doctor Who magazine. That's probably not doing Doctor Who magazine any justice. It's a kid-friendly um, publication around Doctor Who that has been around since, um, I want to say season two, something like that. Maybe season three. No, season two, because Rose was in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and their figures have really tailed off of late. Uh, back in 2010, when... Um, Matt Smith took over. It was, you know, pretty healthy. It had it increased up to a readership of fifty three thousand. Um, now it's down below twenty thousand, which is pretty dismal. Um, Doctor Who magazine 
is still kicking along, really. I mean, they have, as you might expect, their figures have tailed off from the July-December 2013 period, where they obviously got a bump from the excitement around the 50th anniversary and because they you know, published a lot of 50th anniversary material. Um, in the first half of the year, without a show to support it, um, you know, they have naturally tailed off. And that's not really at all surprising. Um, that that kind of happens um, with great frequency. We we saw it happen, you know, back in 2011 where we had the split season. Their, their figures went up in the July-December period because half of season six was there. And then those figures fell by about 3,000 over the January and June period of 2012 makes sense that that sort same sort of fall off has happened but the great news of course is um even even though we're at 33,000 and a bit actually you might as well call it 34,000 for the January to June period of 2014 that is a, a significant increase over that same period last year so we've fallen off from the 50th anniversary times which is expected but we've actually increased over the fallow period last year and certainly over the fallow period before that. If you go back and you look at all the fallow periods, um, basically there is there has been a steady increase since about 2011. Um, so, I, I mean, Doctor Magazine seems to me to be healthy, and I'm not entirely sure if these figures actually account for their digital subscriptions or not. I don't think so. I think this is just hard copies. Um, I'm just reading this thing carefully. Yeah, it doesn't really say. But my guess is these are hard copies and not including the digital stuff. And, you know, the digital DWA has actually been around for quite a while now, and I think closer enough to two years. Um, the DWM stuff, however, is relatively more recent. I think it is only from this year or maybe from late 2013 at the earliest. So it's exciting to see um, what that figure will be. And we don't, I, again, I don't think we actually have the digital figures here at all. But it'll be exciting to see if those digital figures increase because I don't see any reason why they shouldn't. I mean, there is, if you're in America, there is zero incentive, zero, really, to buy the hard copy version of Doctor Magazine. By the time it gets to you, it's going to be massively expensive. Why would you do that when it's you know forty dollars a year gets you thirteen issues of Doctor Magazine digitally? I cannot understand why in the world you would want to buy the the hard copy unless you simply don't have you know an iPad or I think it I think it works on Android too now I think. Um, and, and I guess there are you know a substantial number of people who don't have iPads, but still, I mean the the cost benefit is pretty great on getting it digitally. And if these figures don't include those numbers, and I don't think they do, um, then you know maybe we're not getting a particularly accurate viewpoint of things. It would be the same, I think. But by, by the time that these figures come out again um, for the ne the next six month period. I really think that getting the numbers without digital would be roughly equivalent to, you know, getting the TV figures, the TV ratings, without looking at iPlayer, which clearly is an important part of uh, Doctor Who viewing, you know. 
So it's you know exciting news I think for Doctor Magazine. I don't I, even though this this time period is a loss over the last six months. Again, in general things look pretty good for Doctor Who Magazine. I don't even think it's mixed. I think it's actually good. Um, but Doctor Who Adventures, I I think could be on its way out. I mean Doctor Who Adventures is a magazine I think that is particularly sensitive to. Uh, having an ongoing series because it's all about you know the impulse buy for kids right and um, I just uh, since there's not been really a series for kids since 2011 really oh no sorry since 2013 early 2013 um, the you know I mean we're talking 18 months more or less since there has been regular Doctor Who and I think that that's awfully crushing to um, Doctor Adventures uh, subscription rates in a way that maybe it isn't for Doctor Who Magazine. Although, you look at Doctor Who Adventures um, numbers, and really the high point is July to December 2010, which is kind of uh, kind of an exciting period because that is still you know that's including that first month, the July month, which I think is really important for them, where you still had you know, the tail end kind of excitement of uh, Series 5, you know, Series 5 sort of ending on, I guess, the 26th of June or whatever, um, or, or in the week after that, whatever, right around July. Um, and so there's some excitement over the January-June period because then you're, you know, you've seen the entire series and you've still got some momentum going from it. That's the high point, and they have pretty steadily declined since then. Um, I, it, it could be that that magazine is just out of steam. It really could be. Which right. would be fine uh, while, uh, while you were talking, I just put that there was a second link uh, there. There's um, Doctor Who magazine special, the year of Doctor Who. This is dated on the DoctorWhoNews.net site. Put the link in the room. Friday the 15th of August. Uh, discover discover the behind-the-scenes secrets for the most exciting year in Doctor Who's long history in the latest Doctor Who magazine special edition. Doctor Who celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2013, marking a half-century of time travel adventures. The Year of the Doctor is researched and compiled by Andrew Pixley and has 100 pages packed with previously unpublished photos, day-to-day details of Doctor Who production and hundreds of fascinating new facts. And there's more to read there. Day of the Doctor is in shops now, priced at £5.99. So I suppose that's coming up to about $8, uh, somewhere in that region. And presumably there's a, a digital copy of that available. There is a, but I, I, on the on the special editions, uh, the economies of scale aren't there. Um, in fact, for the special editions, I probably would recommend that you go ahead and try to find that um, hard copy. Right. Uh, I think I think it's actually ten dollars um, to get that digitally, which you know that's basically the price of the magazine anyway. And unless you just don't have access to it. I would, uh, you know, go into your local, if you're American, go into your local um, Barnes & Nobles or whatever and see what they're charging for it before deciding to download it. Because it may well be that it, it is the same price or, or close to the same price. And therefore, you might think 
you know, especially if you're a fan of the real experience of touching something, holding something that you're reading, you might think, okay, it makes sense to do that. But on the on the monthly magazines, it makes zero sense, zero economically, to get um, the hard copy version in America, at least. Okay. Um, I can't remember now whether we're going to go to uh, uh, Mike or, or Jeff on the uh, the scheduling of uh, Dot Who that had been changed. But just while I give them a moment to to pause on that, uh, also on the Dot Who news site is that um, you know midnight screenings, U.S. midnight screenings uh, had been announced. This was on Saturday, um, and the, the details of the the theatres uh, you can click on there. The main nationwide showing of the the story in the US is on Monday, August the 25th, but these are midnight showings, so that's um, Saturday night as it goes over midnight, the August the 23rd into the 24th, and there's a, a listing of a uh, number of ones, including um, New York and, and certain places like that. Fortunately, not Hawaii, it would seem. Um, was it uh, Mike, was it you or Jeff who was going to just mention about the um, the 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 time scheduling of the American... Was it you, Jeff? It was Jeff. I put that in chat. Yeah, that Thank was you. me. Would you do that now, please, then? Oh, sure. Uh, BBC America has a special, what they're calling Doctor Who Takeover Week. Uh, what they're doing is they're running basically a week-long Doctor Who marathon starting on Monday, August the 18th. And they're going to start it with the uh, half-hour documentaries of Doctor Who Revisited, or they're going to examine each of the first 11 doctors. And then continuing from that on Monday, uh, they're going to start their marathon of episodes, and they're going to start with uh, David Tennant, uh, The Christmas Invasion. And on Monday, they're running through Age of Steel. And then after that, after Age of Steel on Monday, they're going to air a brand-new documentary special at 10 p.m. Eastern Time called Doctor Who, The Ultimate Time Lord. Uh, then the marathon continues on Tuesday, August the 19th, and they're going to air the rest of Series 2 as well as Series 3. On Wednesday, the 20th, they're going to air Series 4, including the uh, the Series 4 specials. Um, then on the Thursday, the 21st, they're going to air Series 5. On Friday, the 22nd, will be Series 6, and they're going to end uh, Friday with a new documentary called Doctor Who Earth Conquest at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, series 7 episodes, uh, as well as Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, will air on the 23rd, and that'll lead right up to 8, 8 p.m., where they're going to air a Doctor Who pre-show, as they're calling it, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And then right after that, at 8.15 p.m., they're going to air the first Peter Capaldi episode. And that'll run through 10 o'clock, so that's an hour and 45-minute time slot. Right after that, they're going to air a, the first episode of another new series called Intruders. And then at 11 p.m. Eastern on, on the 23rd, they're going to air something called Doctor Who After Who Live. Uh, they, then they'll repeat Capaldi's first episode at 12.15 a.m. and 3.15 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday morning, uh, the 24th, with the pre-show airing 15 minutes before that. 
Now, for Sunday, the 24th, the rest of the day, uh, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, they're doing something else. They're going to have um, fan-favorite episodes of Doctor Who. And I'm going to put a link into the text chat here uh, for the BBC America website. And um, what they are asking you to do is to pick your favorite Doctor Who episode, starting with uh, Christopher Eccleston, starting with Rose, and going right through the name of the doctor, um, pick your favorite episode. And then they also want you to pick your favorite Doctor Who special, starting with the Christmas invasion, going through the time of the doctor. And the top votes will be aired that day, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday the 24th. So that's what BBC America is doing. And um, Dave, I, I think you had some information yeah. about the start time in uh, the UK. Yeah, I'll go to that. But uh, I've, <laughs> I'm laughing my head off here at what Mike's, Mike's put in text that um, I hope the uh, After Who Live is as good as the live after show that the BBC One did um, uh, last year for Dare the Doctor. Uh, with tongue firmly in cheek there, it was awful. It was about the only... <laughs> A flop uh, at the Christmas. Uh, they had s about 60 past companions and doctors in the room, and the two loving commentators just witted to each other and then would shove a mic straight in somebody's gob and ask them the most inane questions. It was. It was uh, car crash TV, I'm afraid it was, but because it was live, they had nothing to do but go on with it. So I'm assuming that's exactly what Mike meant. It was oh yeah, we should, car also, crash. Back, we should also bring back One Direction for this too. Oh, <laughs> right. Moving swiftly along, um, transmission time for Deep Breath uh, confirmed in the UK. It will be uh, obviously on Saturday the 23rd. It will be at seven. 50 p.m. That's of course British summer time as we are now, and the time slot runs to 10 at uh, 9:10. Of course, I hadn't realised it was a longer-running episode, so there you are. We've had a, a longer episode for this uh, first one that's coming up, and um, in fact, uh, as we are doing this now, it's less uh, it's less than a week away. Uh, yeah, six days. So that is tremendous. But something. Um, that is happening now as we speak is the Hugo Awards. Uh, the Hugo Awards um, are, let me just uh, copy and paste the link in, because if you go to the link uh, www.thehugoawards.org, um, that's certainly update, not any good to those people listening to the recording later, I realize, but there's a text-based live coverage and the Ustream Hugo Awards channel. No doubt the Ustream Hugo Awards channel will stay up there uh, and uh, talking about um, uh, those awards. Um, and we're talking about books, of course. So Best Novel, The Sword in the Stone, Best Noveletta, Best Short Stories, Best Dramatic Presentation, Short Form, uh, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, um, Oh, those are the respective ones. <laughs> I thought those were a bit out of date. Uh, obviously, I'll have to go to the... Um, let me have a look and see. That's been what first mistake. I'm allowed one more. To those new listeners, I'm allowed two mistakes on any of these shows. So um, I've, I've not clicked on the um, the actual... Oh, the award categories. That might be a safe one to go to. Uh, 
Uh, it's a bit long-winded, this. I don't think I've got time to read that. Anyway, the HugoAwards.org are taking place now. Well, I do, We've got, before you um, on to that, Dave, I just wanted to point out one that, well, of course, Doctor Who is nominated for several categories. Day of the Doctor is, is, is awarded, is nominated in the category, but also among the best novels, there's one nominee, The Wheel of Time. In, uh, like, not just because I'm a fan of The Wheel of Time, but because, uh, because of the circumstance. The entire series, all 14 novels, are considered one one item. So, the Wheel of Time, all 14 novels as one for Best Novel is nominated, are nominated. Ah, excellent. Yeah, of course, that series is, concludes at the 14th novel, yeah? Yeah, it, it's it's over. Right, okay. Okay, well, let, let me uh, just uh, switch tack a little bit. Now, there, there was, and I was just saying to Willis Gull, who joined us uh, a little bit after the introductions, there, there's been a few things that that we're still considering speculation, so we're not talking about. So, I uh, just want to mention briefly and give anybody an opportunity, if they want to mention that uh, uh, two particular people have been uh, lost in Hollywood to us, uh, sad deaths recently. Uh, Lauren Bacall, um, born in September uh, 1924 uh, has died uh, she died on the 12th of August um, aged 89 um, obviously from uh, leading lady with Humphrey Bogart to have and have not from 1944 only at the tender age of 19 but looking the very sophisticated uh, lady of her time and in lots of other films since um, if I put in the Wikipedia page to Lauren Bacall, um, I didn't put that one in, let me put that in there. And of course, uh, maybe more relevant to the listenership that we have, uh, Robin Williams uh, sadly passed away, um, only aged uh, 63, I think he is, was, uh, uh, died on August 11th. Uh, the full circumstances of that, I suppose, are still being investigated. Uh, only recently revealed by his wife that um, he was also uh, beginning to suffer from uh, a major illness. And, um, of course, famous in many, many films. I'm sure people like Darth would mention things like The Fisher King and Dead Poets Society, Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, but the one I remember most and enjoyed him in was in Good Will Hunting. Very famously, of course, for those people who are into animated film, he, he broke the mould somewhat with uh, Aladdin where he did the um, the genie there uh, where he was basically ad-libbing, which was, of course, a tremendous amount of work for the animators, um, sort of wind him up, let him go. Um, and, of course, he's in many, many other things. Also, of course, in uh, one-hour photo, uh, again, type, really, very dramatic an outstanding uh, piece in there. And I believe um, his latest um, appearance in the film was yet to be out. I think he's in the latest Night at the Museum. I'm not sure if it's Night at the Museum 4 or whatever, but I believe uh, some of his work is still to be going. Somebody uh, that I read somewhere said he was working, I had worked on four films in this uh, current year. So uh, there will be some of his work still to be released i think probably of those two robin williams may be uh the topic of a um a cult collective special 
probably in the new year after we finish Doc 2. Uh, uh, but is there anybody in the room who wants to, to make any reference to either of those two actors or to both before we move on? Oh, sure. There's one quick comment I wanted to make about Robin Williams is that he was he was a huge fan of, of video games, of anime, and in particular, he was a huge fan of the Legend of Zelda, of Zelda series of video games to the point where he named his daughter Zelda. So right. that's I think that's rather and he, he's just he he's, he was also a huge fan of thing of games like World of Warcraft and online games like that. He. he there were there were lots of articles about him building building a newer and powerful computer computers to to play to play newer games. So Didn't they say one of his one of one of his right. characters in World of Warcraft is going to be? Um, oh yeah, they, re- they reimagined. Blizzard, yeah, Blizzard are naming an an NPC in his honor. And on the topic of naming NPCs, there were some fans of The Legend of Zelda who were. Starting who who are signing a petition to send to Nintendo to convince Nintendo to name an NPC after Robin in a, in a future Zelda game. Nintendo has since commented on that, saying that they they are they are aware of if his, they have they worked with Robin. Robin was in several commercials for the uh, 3D remake of Ocarina of Time: Legend of Zelda uh, with with his daughter Zelda playing the playing the game. And they said that yes, we are we are aware of of his. His devotion, his devotion to the games, and we're not going to comment on future plans for for future games. But uh, yeah, Nintendo have released that. So it's, it's, it's his wide area of areas of interest that that match up to my own. So that's why that was rather rather neat. And uh, one thing I'll just mention before anybody else wants to step in, and that is, um, in 1986, he teamed up with, teamed up with uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Braley Crystal. To find uh, to found Comic Relief USA. So, uh, anybody else want to make a comment before we we uh, we hear from Andy and then move on to our main topic? But as I say, we, I'm sure we will uh, give over a full episode at some time in the future to uh, Robin, the films of Robin Williams, the the craft of the man. Okay, let's uh, try and. Uh, Differentiate now by having uh, hearing from Andy before we go into our classic coup. If you enjoy listening, why not join the collective and participate yourself? We're on TalkShoe. Call ID 54821. Call in on 724-444-7444. This is a US number, area code 724, so do check your calling plan before dialing in. If you have a SIP client, you can call in for free on 66.212.134.192. Or you can connect in directly via the shoe phone client if you have TalkShoe Live installed. Looking forward to hearing you. Um, yes, Darth, I, I thought we decided that, um, that we could talk about it. I mean, if you, if you want to, to mention it, certainly we, could, we can do so now because it, we are talking Dot Who. Do you want to cover that or not? Um, I had mentioned something in text. Okay, indeed you do. I remember I should take that into account. Okay, everybody, we're talking now, hopefully going to cover uh, the two missing episodes that have definitely been found. Definitely, because I hold beside me two DVD copies of uh, Enemy of the World, Web of Fear, 
both uh, second Doctor stories uh, dating back to, um, well, to uh, 1967 and 1968. Uh, so we're going to be uh, talking about Enemy of the World, uh, which uh, was on from the 23rd of December 1967. 76 to the 27th of Jan, uh, six episodes of 25 minutes. Uh, the DVD, after being rediscovered, uh, was released on the um, the 25th of November last year. Uh, before that, I think on the 11th of October on iTunes. And um, let me just play uh, one of a number of little clips just to get us in. We have only a few people in the room, but everybody in the room, as far as I'm aware, has seen them all. And um, let's go to uh, Willis Girl first. I'm just giving her some little bit of um, a warning for that, uh, because um, let me play a first clip from Enemy of the World. Doctor, we're by the seaside. That's where we are. That's all that matters. Aye, but where? Yes, Doctor, we must know. Oh, stop fussing, you two. Come on. Come on, you two. Wait a bit. See if there's any buckets of space in the TARDIS. Buckets of space? Is he going to dig the worm? No, he wants a yeah, you've guessed it. That's the second mistake. Oh, you're a doctor? Well, not of any medical significance. Doctor of law? Philosophy? Which law? Whose philosophy is, eh? Oh, I see. You're determined to be mysterious. Eh? Um, doctor of science? Septic spray, that should be all right. A doctor of divinity, then. You'll run out of doctors in a minute. Ah, you haven't told us your name yet. Astrid Ferrier. Ah, Miss Ferrier, this is Victoria and this is Jamie. Well, now, this won't take a minute. Just want to clean it off. Be as gentle as I can. There we are. Who are these men? Why are they so determined to kill us? Kill you. They hate you. Me? I'm the nicest possible person. <laughs> oh, at least I should say they hate the person that they think you are. Passionately and completely. Can't we tell them they made a mistake? There wouldn't be time. They seem remarkably dedicated. They are. There. Tell me, Celia, do you hate me? Far from it. To me, you're the most wonderful and marvellous man that's ever dropped out of the skies. <sighs> Will you do something for me? Anything. Anything at all. It'll probably cost you your life. Oh, but it would be worth it. Oh, that's, that's comforting anyway. What is it you want me to do? Let me take you to the man I work for, Giles Kent. He'll explain everything you want to know. Yeah, uh, sorry about that first clip. I thought it was the extended version of uh, what I played at the beginning. But, um, yeah, we are in Australia in 2018, uh, when the Doctor is subject to an assassination attempt. And, of course, the, the, the unique, I think fairly unique, uh, no, you can't say fairly unique, 
ignore that. The unique thing about this is that um, we have the Doctor playing two parts within the story, both the protagonist and the antagonist, if that's the right way of putting it. And um, it's um, really one of the great finds of recent times uh, to get such an important story back. Uh, I'm going to go to Willis Girl before I make any more mistakes. Uh, Willis Girl, you, have you had the opportunity to get uh, and watch all six parts of Enemy of the World? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. Um, I guess you guys should know that I'm not used to watching six-part episodes of anything Doctor Who. And the only other Patrick Child episode I have watched has been uh, Team of the Cybermen. I, I've basically avoided watching black and white Doctor Who. I'm used to it being in color. Um, wow. I found the episode to be, you know, it was an okay episode. But after a while, things started to blend together because there were so many darn episodes. <laughs> I'm used to, you know, uh, I'm used to like uh, like the modern day uh, episodes where it's just one episode or the four parters. Not six parts seems, you know, a bit too much. After a while, things but started you, to blend together. But you've got some. You got some cliffhangers though, there. Yeah, there there were some. Yeah. Willis girl. Yes. Um, perhaps this would help you if you're going to watch classic Doctor Who that has you know six parts or eight parts or whatever. It was never meant to be watched in one continuous viewing. Maybe if you broke it up over a few days or a week time, that would help you. Mhm. Yes, because you, 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 the, the tendency on a DVD is to watch it. And say, well, I've only just seen that. I'll do, I'll skip that because I don't need to, I don't need to be reminded. But quite rightly, as you say, and there were no uh, when these first went out, there were no repeats midweek. So basically, you had to rely on your remem- memory of what happened a week ago. So those leads in uh, to the story the following week were very helpful. Jeff, thanks. Yeah, but I was watching it on Hulu, and on Hulu they run the episodes one after the other. <laughs> um, back when I first started watching Doctor Who in the 70s, it ran as a serial where it would come on um, one episode at a time each day. It would come on after school, and I would watch it that way during the 70s. And in the 80s and 90s, when it was on public TV, I'd watch it in the omnibus form, where it would run like a movie. I figured that I'd watch this, you know, one episode after the other, and things just start to blend together. But I, I, I thought it was an okay episode. Um, there was plenty of action in the first episode, especially that held my attention. Um, I liked how at one point Astrid says that the two goons go flying up in the helicopter. It's gonna blow up, and then the aircraft just blows up, just like that. Um, yeah. But- one of the things I thought about it was the fact that if this had been the third Doctor, he'd have taken the controls of the helicopter. He would, yeah, he would have, you know, sort of the, the James Bond type character. But, um, yeah, and I, I thought it was... Ex- I mean, they did jump about continents quite a lot, but it was nice to think that they thought by 2018 uh, we'd, we know, we'd be able to zoom across the world in a couple of hours from from one part of the, the world to a, another section. Uh, which it does quite often in in the storyline. Yeah. And uh, in episode three, I hated how the goons committed violence against porcelain by smashing all these plates together. And the main thing I hated about um, 
the uh, second doctor was that he, in, in this particular episode was that he didn't want to get involved until he could find evidence that uh, Salamander was doing anything wrong, and that doesn't seem like <laughs> the doctor that I'm used to seeing where he he wouldn't get involved in anything until he found evidence. And that just seemed sort of off to me. And I could clearly see how Matt Smith was influenced by him. Like in the first episode, um, when uh, Patrick Chowton just goes briefly taking off his clothes and jumping in the ocean, I could see Matt Smith doing something like that. Yeah, a daft jig, yeah. Yeah. And I felt, oddly enough, attracted to Chowton as Salamander. I think it was that accent he had. Um, right, it was sort of a Mexican, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did a really good uh, job uh, playing two characters in that. And uh, one thing I didn't like at all was the complete gratuitous Doctor versus Salamander fight at the end. It, it just felt like it was just tacked on. I, I didn't see the point of it. it, it, it right. They just did it just so you can see the two two of them together. You know, right. Uh, I mean, there's some great character actors in there. I mean, I'll play a clip in a minute, and, uh, and we'll talk to it more length. But I mean, uh, um, Colin Douglas, um, who played the security guard, he he has also been in Doctor Who in uh, Horror of Fang Rock, if that's one that you've seen. Um, he plays the chap with the stick, the, the sort of the big. Uh, uh, strong uh, security guide. Of course, we have Bill Kerr, who I know from uh, <laughs> from comedy roles, in, indeed, from, uh, you know, Hancock's Half Hour and so on, um, uh, in there. And um, then there's the Czech actor, George Prada, uh, playing the, the, the guy with the conscience that um, that uh, that's eating his, uh, his last meal, as it were, in the corridor when they're trying to uh, save him. There was an awful lot happening. Let me play another clip to move us on. This is from episode two. What is all this? I'll just give you a couple of minutes. I have a meeting. This is important, Benick. I hope so. Well? Salamanders left you in control of the research station? Yes. Did he go on the rocket for the Central European Zone? Yes. Do you see him go aboard? Hasn't been an accident, has it? Did you see the rocket take off? Do you mean that I stand there waving my handkerchief? Hardly. I have too much to do. You're not a very funny man, Benick. Not to me. Now, answer me. Did you actually see him leave? What is all this? I've just driven straight here from having spoken to Salamander. Not 200 miles away. That's impossible. I don't lie. Even to someone like you. He was with Giles Kent. With the eighth Kent? Exactly. Kent wasn't hurting him by force, was he? No, I thought of that. Salamander was a wee bit odd, I admit. Not quite his usual self, but he was perfectly in control. All he had to do was bat an eyelid, and I'd have knocked off everyone in sight. Oh, well, I don't understand it. Now, Salamander suggested that he was on his way to the Central European Zone. Now, you're in radio contact with him. I want you to talk to him. Make sure that Kent hasn't got some hold over him that we don't know about. He instructed me not to bother him until the conference was over. Well, I'm countermanding that instruction. I'm telling you, Brutes, he won't answer. Not till the conference is over. It's too important. Yeah, and um, the uh, person playing Benick there was Milton Johns, who, again, if you've watched any classic, uh, you'll know him from Invasion of Time, uh, played uh, Castellan 
Kellner, I think, uh, in that. Um, and of course, there was this strange thing where um, the salamander would go um, through this sealed door. What, what do you think about that that aspect of the story? Well, this girl. Um, it was uh, very interesting. <laughs> Does it not yeah. remind you of any other third Doctor story where the where they've got people on the, who think they're on a spaceship going somewhere when uh, London is being uh, terrorised by dinosaurs? It remind you of that? Um, I haven't seen it. It's in black and white. I haven't really seen it. Ah, right. <laughs> did, well, did, did you... a blind spot did, in my uh, who watching. Okay. I haven't really seen any black and white episodes, just a handful of them. Did, did you find that that le- mattered less and less as you got into the story? Did it matter less and less? That it was in black and white. I mean, were you able to forget that it was black and white and just go in with the story and enjoy it? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I was. It's just that uh, I just avoided it. Right. <laughs> I have to tell you that. I just avoided that black and white Doctor Who. Well, perhaps you Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure you'll come in with more comments. Let's go to, to, to Jeff and um, see if he wants to make some first comments. And by the way, since we only have a few people on audio, if if Mike or Darth want to jump in with comments um, at any moment, please do so. We we don't need to sort of go in any regimented order today. Uh, Jeff, are you able to go talk now? Uh, well, I love the the first episode. It was very action packed. Something uh, I wasn't expecting actually uh, from this story. Uh, it felt in some ways very third Doctor ish uh, with the action sequences from from the first episode. Um, very intriguing story overall. There's really no or very little sci-fi element to it. There's no monster of the week, which we get very much in the Troughton era. Um, there's no outer space influence really to it. I, I, there is that satellite, but you know, there, you know, there's no aliens, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, uh, I, I was very impressed with Patrick Troughton's acting, how he kind of plays three roles in a way. He plays the Doctor, and he plays Salamander, and then he plays the Doctor playing Salamander. Uh, yeah. uh, it's very intriguing, and, and just watching his uh, acting for the three different parts, uh, it, it was very impressive, I thought, uh, especially the, the first scene that where he impersonates Salamander. Uh you, you can tell that it, it's not quite right, and he hasn't had really any time to prepare himself to play Salamander. But uh, you, you can see the, the three distinct uh, roles that he's playing there, and uh, he, he almost gets it right, I think, toward the end. He, in fact, he impersonates uh, Salamander in front of uh, Jamie and Victoria, and uh, you're, you're quite convinced uh, that... It is Salamander. As an audience, you're, you're not quite sure. You're, you're, you don't see the Doctor going in and then becoming Salamander. You, you just see, you know, uh, an actor coming or the, the the part coming in, and you're not quite sure. Is that the Doctor or is that Salamander? Well, I think it's the Doctor, but is it really? It, it's really up in the air. It's just wonderful to watch Patrick Troughton play uh, all all three of these roles. Uh, I was um, 
Um, very impressed with uh, the the character. I can't think of his name. Uh, the 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 uh, security um, person. Yeah, uh, Colin Douglas. Uh, the, the, oh yeah, that's um, Bruce uh, Don, Donald Bruce. Donald Bruce. Yes, uh, he's not really you know just a one-sided character. You can see real depth to him. Uh, and you're not quite sure whose side he's on or which side he'll favor. Um, he's a really a three-dimensional character, uh, and you, you can see that uh, you know the doctor needs to convince him of Salamander, and 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 that's another aspect of, of the story that I really liked. You don't see uh, the doctor taking so much time to being convinced of some character being, you know, the baddie, so to speak, in most stories. But in this one you do, it, the doctor's really concerned about getting the the facts right about each player in in the world politics and making sure that he's citing the right side, if you will. Um, I... I love that they've found this story because uh, it, it has a lot of depth to it and it, it keeps your interest throughout. It, Like I said, it's a different type of story. There's no real outer space uh, aspect to this. It, it, it could be in another TV show. It, 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 and and I, I think that shows the uh, depth of Doctor Who, of all the different types of storytelling that the show can do. And you don't see this kind of story very often on on the show, and to see it here and have the story recovered is is a joy. Uh, it's just another aspect of Doctor Who that you don't see very often. So it's just wonderful that the that it was recovered, and that they could uh, restore the the episodes into a form that could be on DVD or you know through iTunes or or whatnot. Uh, so I, I really like the story a lot. Um, yeah, the, I'll, I'll the, leave that. The, Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, the actor you <clears throat> that played that part, Colin Douglas, as I said, was in Horror of Fang Rock. But um, a couple of years later, well, a few years later, actually, in uh, seventy to seventy-two, he was the the lead character in a, a fantastic drama on BBC called A Family at War. Um, oh, sorry, ITV it was. Um, uh, family at War from 70 to 72, uh, playing the, the lead character, Edward Ashton. And um, Patrick Troughton uh, was a guest on that, playing uh, a character called Harry Porter. So he returned the favour. But yeah, the, 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 I thought the acting on this was excellent. And uh, as I said, um, I talked uh, a little bit more at length with this with Lewis on Podshock episode 298. Let me play another clip, then we'll go to, to Mike. Uh, but as I say, anybody can jump in at any point. Here's a clip from episode three. Well, we all seem to be here, except the third member of your escape committee. I don't know what you're talking about. You are seen speaking with the girl in the park, the one who tried to escape with Dennis. Don't know anything about that. Don't even know her. A diversion was caused. There was no one outside the kitchen. Of course there was someone, and there was shooting. Three shots have been fired from this gun. It's yours, isn't it? Pretending to save my life was ingenious. But ingenuity requires a constant stream of new ideas. Yours seem to have dried up. I come to the central zone. An attempt is made on my life. 
Dennis proves to be a traitor. Federer commits suicide because I uncover him. Do your job, Bruce. You can see they're all in this. All right, take him away. Take your hands off me! Tell Amanda, I think it's about time you told me what's going on. One minute I see you with this lad McCrimmon, you're working together, the next I minute... I thought he saved my life. No, I mean before that, in Kent's office. What are you talking about? Well, I saw you there. But I haven't seen Kent in months. Yes, you were with Kent, the ferrier girl, those two youngsters. I thought was so curious, I spoke to your number two, Benick, about it. That's really the reason I came to this zone. But I tell you... I must get back to the research center. You will come with me. It was you! Or oh, someone like you. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually quite a complex drama in that. Um, uh, Mike, are you okay to talk at this point? Yeah, I'm here. Um, yeah, I, did, uh, I was re-watching this, this story earlier in the week, and it, 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 the story does get kind of complicated with, with, with all of the impersonation going on. We have the Doctor as himself. We have the Doctor impersonating, impersonating Salamander, and then we have Salamander himself. So we have those three kind of characters to keep track of. And then at the very end of the story, we have that very brief scene of uh, Salamander impersonating the Doctor to try to gain, ac- gain access to the TARDIS. So four different imper- four, four different acting roles going on there that Patrick Chowton did. So it, it, it was... It, so, you know, getting the story back, I remember October of last year when it was revealed that this and Web of Fear had been recovered and were released on iTunes, and I remember getting them to, you know, lost stories are back. And, uh, and, and I remember all the, all the discussion we had, like, I remember Darth mentioning how neat it was to see classic Doctor Who on the top-selling chart TV show chart on iTunes. But, you know, here we are. We got We have these stories, and, of course, we've mentioned the, the different format you know these are this is a six episode story i think six episodes and uh, we had Willisco mentioning you know how difficult it was to watch it quickly and then we had Jeff mentioning this is not you know, watch it in watch it in different sittings don't try to watch it all at once don't especially if that's not what you want you don't, you don't want to do that with with uh, the war games for example but this story it, it's it's nicely paced but there are some story elements that don't get resolved we don't find out what ultimately happens to the people down in the uh, in, in the underground uh chambers we don't find out what happens to them if they're ever rescued that's never resolved uh and of course this does have a nice lead in to uh love and fear but overall, I, I, it was neat to see Patrick Troughton as these in these different roles. And as I said, they're not. It's not just. He's not Patrick Troughton is not just playing two different characters. He's playing a character who's impersonating another character, and we just get that those all those layers of the story. And that's that's neat. It's neat to watch there. So I just uh, my first thoughts about the episode. It was neat to see and nice to have uh, it's always nice to have these lost stories recovered but um yeah yeah i enjoyed the the story just looking at the uh, the millions of viewers when it first aired um started at 6.8 million then went up to 7 7.6 7, down to 7.1 up to 7.8 then it dropped on the fifth one so that's echoing a little bit what willis girl perhaps said down to 6.9, but um, for the final episode, 8.6. It's as though people sort of, uh, you know, a few people drifted off and then uh, tuned back in for the final uh, 
um, part of it. Uh, Darth, uh, do you want to comment a bit on this before I go to a, a, a final clip on it? Um, yes, sure. Um, sorry, you got me a little bit unawares because I thought I would have a little more time there. Um, hmm. Hold on one second. Well, let me let me play the clip then and uh, give you time to compose. Yeah, do that. Mm-hmm. Look at the bit of headline there. There! Holiday liner sinks. You say there's a global war, radiation everywhere. How can there be holiday liners? Tell me how! You've lied to us, haven't you? In a way, Swan, yes. I, I had to. Had to? What do you mean, had to? Well, it's true that, that the war is over. But have you any idea what happens to people who've been involved in a nuclear war? Have you? Of course I haven't. I've been down here. Those who are lucky enough to escape the annihilation have their bodies eaten away by radiation poisoning. They deformed in minor body. But this, this, this newspaper. They have a kind of society, but it's, it's evil, corrupt. You don't think I could expose you to, to that sort of thing? Think of Mary and the other women. You could have told me at least. I decided not to. You should have told me. I thought it was best. And what about the natural disasters we've been organizing? The volcanoes, earthquakes? Swan. They're not fit to live. You're murdering them. Killing them off. I want you and the others to inherit the earth. Make a new world. Yes, I know all about that. But not the price of wholesale murder. It's not murder. If you could see or understand. It's an act of mercy. There must be some other way. No. I won't take your word anymore. I want to see for myself. Yeah, in this case, the crimson horror... Was the volcanoes going off, trying to wipe people out? Yep, that was uh, Swan Lake played by uh, Christopher Burgess there. Uh, not Christopher Burgess of uh, a certain podcast that Darth listened to. Hmm, that's true. He's not. He's a different Christopher Burgess. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, um, the weird thing about Enemy the World is that People have, and by people I mean Doctor Who fans, have for a long time suggested that it is radically different from the other stories in this particular season because it doesn't have any monsters in it, because it um, doesn't have science fictional elements. That's, of course, not true. Um, It is very much like um, Ice Warriors. It's just that Ice Warriors happens to have these monsters on top of the story but the essential story um is very very similar you know sort of end of the world situation uh you know earth hangs in the balance is it going to be um corrected by means of some science fictional element um or you know not and in the case of uh, ice warriors uh that progress is you know thwarted or or hindered by the presence of the ice warriors themselves in the case of enemy of the world it's you know a human enemy but basically the story is very 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 similar um and you know people say it's not exactly a base under siege it isn't technically based under siege and that makes it 
a, you know, slightly different than the other stories, but it really feels like a base under siege. It's got all the elements of a base under siege. It's just that technically the base is not under siege. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 not as radically different as it has been made out to be for years. And that was the thing that, that struck me upon seeing it for the first time. Um, it was just how much it is clearly a part of series five. Um, and, and also, you know, how it is integrated into the, the overall season in terms of its narrative. Willis girl saying early on, well, the, the finals battle doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not really necessary. It's entirely necessary to the progress of the season, because if you don't get rid of Salamander, then what happens to him? You know, it, that would be a huge question mark over this, particular serial if it if you didn't figure out a way to get rid of him permanently then he's coming back you know and as it turns out that's a really good thing because since the story takes place in 2018 um that clearly is going to impinge unless something weird happens and doctor who gets canceled uh, upon the modern series you know because otherwise you'd have peter quality probably or somebody else running around in 2018 and you know the question will be why isn't he meeting salamander well the reason is because patrick trouton is dead um but now the narrative reason because of that last scene is because he was sucked out into the time vortex and therefore is fictionally dead as well um so i think it plays an important part in the in the proceedings as it turns out in the in the broader scheme of doctor who um and I, I think also that last scene makes a great deal of sense in that um, if Salamander does catch wind of the existence of a time machine because of what we know about his nature, because he is somebody that is using technology to manipulate the entirety of the world's progress, of course he would be interested in getting that, his hands on that technology. Of course he would be drawn there. Um, so it's not tacked on. It's, it, it actually does make a great deal of sense and, and makes for um, – an interesting scene uh, in which you do see Patrick Trout on two sides of the frame. And, you know, it's done in an interesting way, maybe not the most technologically uh, developed way, but nevertheless, it is it is fascinating to see how they handle that. And, of course, another thing that, you know, we have gained by actually getting these episodes in vision is to see Barry Letts and his... Um, early attempts to use CSO. Very odd scene that, um, you know, that very nascent CSO that existed in black and white. Uh, it's kind of weird to be talking about color separation overlay in black and white. But um, I, the um, it, it is nevertheless interesting to see that scene where um, uh, Jamie, I guess, is walking in the park and the park is sort of projected rear screen behind him and um, and and to see, you know, it, it's almost laughable how obviously Barry Letts that is. Um, but I, I certainly didn't expect any kind of CSO in, in the proceedings here. And I don't think anybody who was going off of the, the, you know, audio descriptions would have ever thought that there was something like that. So in that sense, incredibly valuable historically if you're interested in the production of Doctor Who to actually get these things recorded. I think it's an object lesson in how it is that we sometimes don't know really much about 
the production of a particular lost episode based upon the sound, because the sound would never give you that clue. In the same way that in episode one, which Jeff spoke so highly of, uh, the scene on the beach, yes, it can be described, but I don't think until you see Patrick Troughton do it, do you understand exactly how amusing that scene was, exactly how uh, full of action it was, and certainly you don't understand, you know, this is very early, this is only season five, you don't understand the panorama, right? You don't understand the the um, the joy of location filming without actually seeing it in vision. Um, and, uh, you know, in my mind, that was a fairly throwaway uh, block of, um, footage there uh, when when all I had to go on was what it sounded like. It didn't seem like that significant a scene. Now I would say, just like BBC Worldwide have said, that is kind of a signature moment from the entire serial, and so that's what they have put forward in some of their trailers. Uh, but I would never in a million years have thought that that was trailer-worthy stuff just based on listening to the surviving soundtrack um so enemy of the world is a fascinating one for me because of how it is dispelled uh a lot of what turned out to be myths about its qualities that you know were based upon audio and i I think it's an important lesson because i think it it tells us you know even those episodes that we don't currently think of as being great probably are great and it makes me hungry for something like smugglers part one because that is you know largely on location largely you know cornish coast it's one of the i think it's the first really major bit of location filming in doctor who history and it makes me think that all of that series that first episode is really fantastic that it must look great especially after it gets all cleaned up and stuff and i would i would love now to see smugglers. I've always wanted to see smugglers, but I think that this episode one of Enemy of the World really profoundly makes it um, a goal to somehow get smugglers episode one back, to get a taste of what that first location shoot really was about. As for the acting of Pastor Troughton, you know, what are you going to say? Um, he's great. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know that the... Salamander performance is a hundred percent convincing, but it's at least ninety percent convincing. Um, and I, you know, I suppose it's as good as you're going to get uh, in terms of a doctor playing the enemy. It certainly seems like it is a better performance than, say, Matt Smith in uh, Nightmare. What the hell is that called? Nightmare of Steel. Is that what it is? Silver. Silver. Silver, Silver Nightmare. Yes, of course. Nightmare, um, nightmare, nightmare in, in, silver. In, in silver, yeah. Um, it's better than that. Um, it's it's maybe, you know, and again, it's hard to tell because we don't have it. It's hard to tell whether it is better than the Abbot of Amboise that the first Doctor plays in The Massacre. It's probably at least on a par with Megalos, you know, where the Doctor is playing Megalos. Um but, um, you know, it's it's still really important to get this one recovered. Really great that it's, it's one of the ones that came back. Probably not the first on many people's list of what they wanted to get back. But 
I really think that from what I can tell of the fan reaction now that it's been a few months, and certainly in terms of the sales that it generated on iTunes, which is just remarkable, really, um, it, it certainly seems to have been a hit, even though people weren't expecting it to be. And, and this, again, another object lesson for fans of Doctor Who, uh, especially older fans of Doctor Who who are f- more familiar with these missing episodes, don't think that you know what's a good episode of Doctor Who based on the audio. You don't. You really don't. Um, I I know, and you can tell by the way that this um, this thing rose in the poll that Doctor Who magazine took of the best um, Doctor Who episodes. You can really tell that by seeing the episode, people began you know came to appreciate it. Um, and so I would think you know even lowly uh, releases like. You know, like Smugglers. I think a lot of people don't really think the Smugglers is great. I personally think, or have a, a sneaking suspicion, that it is in fact fantastic, uh, especially for what it reveals about the characters of uh, Ben and Polly. I, I really think that if that came back, people would be like, "Wow, I'm glad this came back," because I just never would have thought. Savages, I think too. If that came back, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how good it is. Uh, but maybe not. You know, we don't know. And that's the, that's the crapshoot of missing episodes is that um, I think before we haven't started talking yet about the Web of Fear, but before Web of Fear and Enemy of the World came back, I think most people would have told you that their favorite episode obviously would be Web of Fear. And I think a lot of people were surprised to find out that actually they really liked Enemy of the World better than Web of Fear. Because what Web of Fear reveals to its audio, its video, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, is, you know, just how crappy those Yeti really are. Um, whereas before, we only kind of thought maybe they were crappy. Now we know they were really crappy. Um, and and before, you know, on Enemy of the World, I think people thought, well, the Salamander bit is probably pretty good. But I think people are surprised at how much better it is when you add, you know, Patrick Troughton's facial acting. His, his his use of his body language to uh, the lines that Salamander says, and you start to realize, wow, he's just holding himself totally different. It's, he has transformed himself physically into a different sort of person. And because he's taken the time to do that, now I'm buying this whole thing more, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But having said that, you know, the other, the other thing that is surprising, as I said at the top, what is how samey this actually feels with other episodes in Series 5. Um, series 5 is really all about, um, you know, I think we've all, we've tended to think of it as the monster season. And, you know, except for Tomb of Cybermen, and even that you could make an argument for, uh, I think it's really Attack on Earth, right? Uh, most of the stories in season five have to do with some sort of dreadful life ending thing that's going to happen on earth. And it's just retelling that story over and over again. And again, even tomb is essentially that because the the fear I suppose is that once the Cybermen wake up and get their strength back, they will go then and attack earth. Um, and, and it's fascinating now to, to see enemy of the world and to actually, I think, put a proper label on what season five actually is. It's not the monster season. It's attack on earth. And therefore it is is trending Dr. Who towards its 
um, I guess you would call it, you know, half-life conclusion, which is essentially, you know, uh, the first Tom Baker season. Um, it's it's showing, uh, it's lighting up the, the pathway. Sort of started with, um, uh, good Lord, what's the first bit of Holly one? War Machines. Making Doctor Who more and more and more Earth-centric after it had not been to begin with, right? And and certainly, there's really none of these stories uh, that you couldn't imagine would be okay with Unit, right? In season five, all the season five stories really could have Unit or something like Unit in them without too much difficulty. Um, and that, of course, is where eventually we end up until, you know, more or less the halfway point on the classic series. And you finally see in season 13, well, really more 14, I suppose, the Doctor just cutting ties with Earth and, you know, going off about his way without really too much reference to unit anymore. But certainly, you know, from 5 to 14, uh, or certainly 5 through 13, it's really more stories than not have to do with some attack upon Earth, right? And um, the, Enemy of the World was the last, you know, sort of puzzle piece that not too many people had considered too carefully. But then once you see it, you realize, well, yeah, it's all about Earth. I mean, it's it's completely. It is not that this is the 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 standalone, the the standout, the uh, the odd story out. It is that it is the most completely normal story in season five as compared with what eventually is going to be the paradigm as we move forward out of the Troughton era and into the Pertwee era. So, again, the the big thing, the surprise for me about Enemy of the World is really its normalcy as opposed to its exceptionalism, you know? Right. Uh, A few points. Uh, the, going back to that list that you mentioned, yeah, um, the Web of Fear, which we'll go in a bit, only moved up from 20, well, it's still a high-ranking one at 23 out of the 200, rose to 16, but the Enemy of the World rose from uh, 139 up to 56, so that's a massive jump. Uh, also, uh, just to uh, reflect on what Willis Girl had said about the, the length of uh, the story. Um, this was a time, of course, when the, the actors didn't get much time off. And uh, uh, episode four, uh, Fraser Hines and Deborah Waffling didn't appear in episode four. They were on their holiday. And uh, going to the cast again, a, a lot of this cast were actually uh, in quite a few others. Uh, Troughton's son, David Troughton. Uh, makes his first Doctor Who appearance here as an uncredited extra. Uh, of course, he, he he comes back in other ones like uh, Person Halladon and so on. Um, uh, uh, Christopher Burgess, who played Swan, was in Terror of the Autons and Planet of the Spiders. Uh, Andrew Staines, who played the Sergeant Tabenic, was in Carnival and Monsters and so on. And the novelisation uh, was written by uh, Ian Marta. Um, so... Uh, that was uh, uh, another connection there. Okay, well, we're coming up nearly to an hour and a half. You so know what? Uh, you just said that it sparked a memory there. Uh, yeah, the, the weird thing about this novelization is that um, it was sort of considered to be one of the more adult ones, and it cuts out 
a lot of the story, and basically it doesn't really follow the story at all. It's one of the more interesting ones. If you are a person who is sort of bored with the Terrence Dick style of, you know, just a faithful reproduction of the story, this is definitely one of the more interesting ones. And, uh, again, if you formed your impression of uh, The Enemy of the World off of the novelization, Man, I think you were probably really surprised by what the story turned out to be when you were able to see it in vision. Yeah, and of course, uh, Ian Martz, for those who where they played Harry Sullivan in the classic series, uh, alongside the fourth Doctor. Dave, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, quickly, um, first I want to ask Willis Girl, um, she mentioned the length of this, uh, and it was getting kind of blended in together with with itself um if, if you look at the end of time at its two parts the amount of time for that story is not that much less than the sixth part here for the enemy of the world uh did, did you find that the end of time got tedious and kind of blended in on itself and um not at all Okay, I wonder well, what... I'm just not, not used to the pacing of the uh, classic black and white Doctor Who. So, so it's more the pacing than the length itself. Yeah. The, okay. the first episode of this was just great to get through because there was a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was just curious, so thank you for, for clarifying that. And, and the other thing I want to mention, Dave, is uh, with this story and also with uh, Web of Fear, uh, to an extent, uh, the the uh, the women in the story are very strong. Uh, you had Astrid, w- which was a very strong character, very action-oriented and uh, commanding, um, something you wouldn't think much of from a 60s story, as well as the, uh, the food taster. She had her moments as well as being a very strong character. Uh, black actress as well, yeah. Yeah. So, which, which, uh, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say, the, the Mary Peach who played the Astrid character, uh, apparently when Diana Rigg left the Avengers, uh, she was one of the actresses considered to play the role of Steve's new assistant. So gives you an idea of, you know, that was in 1968, just after this. So maybe a performance in this tr- triggered a similar viewpoint. And she was considered for the role of uh, an assistant in the Avengers. Yeah, that's a good point, Dave. But, uh, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about uh, uh, the enemy of the world. Okay, well, then let's redirect our thought process to um, Weber Fear. One of the nice things about the fact of these two stories being found is that with them being back-to-back stories, it means you have... 12 episodes, yes, we've got another six-part story coming up. Um, you have 12 episodes of Doctor Who, uh, Doctor Who together, and as, as Darth related to the um, the opening bit of uh, this one, it is a, a recap in a way of uh, the death of Salamander. I've got a very short clip to start us off, and then uh, we'll, we'll go to Willis Girl again if we may. Oh, well done, Davy. Oh. You did it! Oh. oh, that was a dear thing, wasn't it? <laughs> Are you all right, Victoria? Oh, what happened? Oh. Are we safe now? Oh, yes, I think so. <clears throat> oh. Salamander started the TARDIS without first closing the door. 
He was knocked out. Uh, and I nearly joined him. I'm very glad you didn't. He's not in a very enviable position, you know, at the moment, floating around in time and space. Now then, where shall we go? Oh, well, let's just get our breath back first before you start tearing off anyway. Anyway, as you know, the TARDIS has a mind of its own. You know you can't control it. Can't control it? Nope. We'll see about that. We'll see about that. Here we go again. I wonder where it will be this time. Yes, I wonder. Gosh, the TARDIS humming was rather loud there, wasn't it? Uh, Willis Girl, um, did you manage to get all the way through Weather Fear? Yeah, I did. Again, it blew together because I watched it one after the other, which I now know is not the way to watch Classic Factor Who. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, let me just, let, let me, before you start, just say that this aired from the 3rd of February, 1968 to the 9th of March, six episodes, uh, season five. Um, uh, episode three is still missing on this one, though. There is one episode, and you may want to comment about it, that... Um, is done in sort of um, uh, still still captured images. And there was some delay. I, I think there was some thought that they were going to animate this episode properly. I don't know uh, if anybody knows any background to so that. Probably one of our members does. But uh, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Willis Girl. Off you go. Um, I really enjoyed the first episode. I got, I got an understanding of how people... Um, Years ago, said they watched Doctor Who behind the sofa because I felt that uh, first episode very atmospheric and spooky, and I really liked it. Um, let's see, I loved seeing the uh, first appearance of the Brigadier. Of course, at the time, he's a colonel. And I saw the Yeti for the first time. Um, I don't understand the Yeti. Who would put fur on a robot? Like, who would do that? Wouldn't their circus get overheated? And I, I just... That just sort of, I didn't see the point of that. I mean, I just, I just didn't see the point of the Yeti. And then who would put fur on them? So those well, I, the I, main thing I couldn't stand I, about the I, Yeti. Yeah, Go I ahead. Mean, I think this, is, this is something that you need the snowman for, actually. Um, it was a mystery for a very long time. Uh, exactly why did the great intelligence decide that they were going to go you know, up into the Himalayas, why did they put it inside of a thing that looked like a Yeti? I mean, part of the reason that they replicated the robots was apparently because that was a myth, or at least what humans thought were myths. So they figured that if they made it that, that uh, you know, something that looked like a mythical creature, that if humans saw it, they wouldn't necessarily regard it or they would be afraid of it. And they wouldn't try to seek it out. They weren't really counting on the doctor to be super curious about it. But, of course, as we learned in The Snowmen, the whole reason that they're going into something that is warm is because the great intelligence learns that um, to have ice creatures, which is what the original plan was, for whatever reason, um, doesn't work out because ice melts, because it's vulnerable to things. And so, you know, the doctor gives them a tip-off uh, gives the great intelligence the tip off of, you know, hey, look at this. It's the London Underground. Think about that for a minute. Think about, you know, London Underground from 19, late 1960s or whatever. Maybe that's where your plans will go because he's deliberately sending them to a place where he knows that he's already defeated them. So creating a little time paradox. But the whole, the, the notion, I suppose, is that 
they're warm because they're the precise opposite of the snow men of the you know the original attempt was to do it through ice and so they're the opposite of ice in a way it's it's all kind of dumb but that's what i think it is actually thanks for that Uh, yeah um to me the whole thing just sort of blend together is just just people walking along in the dark um along the the, uh, london underground and there's this poisonous deadly web-like fungus and someone's giving aid to the bait, to the uh, baddies, and you find out that the traitor is a dead guy, um, Sar- Sa- uh, Staff Sergeant Arnold, who died in Episode 4. And I, I it just seemed... Did you not think it was a bit of a who did it, uh, who done it rather, though? I mean, there's a lot of red herrings with different people acting suspiciously, and you think, oh, they're left alone, and this, that, and the other. I mean, there was a, a little bit of a... You know, unicorn and the wasp about it in in, in that sense. Yeah, I guess we just seem repetitive. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, those were let, just let, my impressions. Let, 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 yeah. let, let, let me play a, a clip from episode one, and 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 feel free to jump back in if you have any th- other thoughts. Okay. Some sort of grill. Oh, I do say you landed it in a prison. Could be the dungeons of a castle. Too dark. Ah, steps. Oh, I'll be careful. She's got a room. Tile walls. Curved ceiling. And let me just uh, unmute. Uh, well, let's go. I don't know if your audio just went out there a minute. Let me just uh, check uh, who we've got at South California. Is it uh, Ken Gobo? Yes, it is, Ken. Hi, uh, Ken. Um, are you okay to just uh, sit and, and listen for a moment until you catch up where we're up to? Yes. Okay. Uh, I've been listening anyway. I'll be mostly on silence, but I wanted to be in the room. Thank you very much Sorry, indeed. Everyone. Yeah, we've just heard Willis Girl talking about um, uh, uh, weather fear. Jeff, do you want to, to follow on? Well, um, I, I'd never seen the Eddie other than in the five doctors. So, and they were very shadowed out in that story. So you really didn't get a good look at it. And something Darth said earlier, I, I kind of have to agree with, um, they're not well constructed. Now I know they had two different models, one for the, the, the prior story and then uh, a second model for this one. Um, but still they, 
they they didn't look all that convincing to me. Um, the the sound effects for the uh, for the Yeti I thought was uh, uh, very on, sorry Jeff very... sorry sorry Jeff weren't convincing as real Yeti I weren't convincing as robot Yeti. Well, because um, the whole point was they weren't real Yeti if there are such things. But but weren't they supposed to look like real Yeti? Uh, Darth kind of alluded to that earlier as yeah, well. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, to me, they, they just didn't look real convincing, uh, especially around the eyes. Something about that just kind of threw me off, if you will. Um, um, I, I don't know. This the story, I, I didn't enjoy as much as Enemy of the World. Uh, I, I thought I would like it more, and, you know, Darth kind of alluded to that, too. Uh, everybody wanted to see... Um, Web of Fear, that's the one that one of the missing stories that everyone wanted to see and not so much the enemy of the world and I kind of found that it was the opposite after I had watched both of them. And I don't know if episode 3 being telesnaps kind of threw me off on that. Uh, I've seen other telesnaps and they've kind of put me to sleep almost and this one almost did as well. I, I think... Um, Part of that also was I was watching it late at night, so you really have to be fully awake and uh, alert to watch these Telesnap episodes. I really wish they had put more time into it and animated it. I, I think it would have come off better, uh, even if you are alert. Um, it, it was good to see uh, the, the beginning characters, or the beginning character, I should say, of of um, uh, the That's Brigadier. Sure. Yeah, Lethbridge Stewart, uh, even though he wasn't Brigadier yet. I, I think you see a lot of the qualities there of of who would later become Brigadier Alistair Gordon, Lethbridge Stewart, um, right there at the beginning of the story, especially his commanding presence uh, when they went up and fought the Yeti outside. And uh, uh, it was good to see that. It was good to see that uh, that he had such a... Uh, good performance in the story that they brought him back as uh, the brigadier later on and actually made him a uh, a full character on the show for several seasons or series. I don't know what you would want to call it. I guess seasons in the classics series. Um, in fact, probably the longest running companion for the Doctor, if you want to classify him as a, as a companion. Um I, I don't know. Um, I, what did you think I, about I, the fact that they even made the brigadier a, a possible suspect? If you know what I mean, you know nobody well, could um, account for him or, or confirm his corroborate who he was in that. Well, that that aspect of the story I thought was very well done. It was kind of a who done it or who is doing it type of thing, uh, and we don't know who Colonel Lethbridge Stewart is at this point, really. Uh, not certainly like we do later on in Doctor Who. And so playing that with some of the other shady characters on on this story, I thought was uh, well done, one of the better aspects of the story. Um, set construction, I thought, of the underground looked very good as well. That was pretty convincing to me anyway. Never have been there. It looked realistic to me. In fact, I think I've read somewhere where 
Um, yes, yes, it's they, also. They they actually went down and filmed in in the underground at some well, point. Well, no, the the, 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 the the people from the underground were accusing them of sneaking down and filming without permission. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I thought the set construction looked really good for the underground. I uh, was convinced with that aspect of the story. So the the uh, the art department or the construction people they they did a great job with that. Um, uh, I I thought it was interesting that they left it open ended um, at the end with the intelligence, uh, kind of unlike what we had with the prior story with Salamander, where they got rid of him. Well, with the intelligence, it's still there waiting to, uh, you know, come back. And we actually, spoiler alert, uh, do see it come back later on, uh, which was a, a nice aspect. Um, I don't know. The story was kind of a hodgepodge for me. There's certain things I really liked about it, some things I didn't like about it. And so it's kind of a middle-of-the-road type story. If I had to rate it, maybe a three or three-and-a-half, it was certainly not as good as Enemy of the World, uh, which I thought had better pacing, uh, better believability, if you will, um, just a nicer story all around. Now, you've you've obviously seen Fraser Hines' stories uh, before, uh, Jamie's stories. Uh, right. Have you seen much with the, with Vic, Victoria Waterfield, with the Deborah Wallington character? Had you a, have any opportunities? Just a few stories, and honestly, I, I didn't think there was much to the character, and maybe I've missed a whole lot with these missing stories uh, that I've not seen, um, but... And I understand that she came from an earlier time where men were more prominent and uh, women were not as prominent or not as strong, if you will, in a lot of ways, especially as portrayed on TV and movies uh, going back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So, you know, there's there's aspects to that character where she probably wouldn't be as portrayed as strongly as as you might think, um, women from the era that, that she came from. but um, Well, yeah, she first appeared in the Evil of the Daleks as the daughter of the scientist there. Right. Um, I, I think I've only seen like maybe three or possibly four, I'm not sure, stories with Victoria. And there's just not enough of her doing things to really be impressed by her, at least for me. Now, I, maybe I'm just off base. Uh, Darth has a lot more knowledge. He might uh, correct me on that character. Oh, oh, I, I liked it. Let me play a clip and we'll perhaps go to Darth in a minute. But um, uh, yeah, there was. Um, let, let me play a clip from uh, the third episode. And, and like you said, this is the one that has the still caps. They tried to get these out. One thing I should point out to those listening who, who do feel as though they want to go and buy the DVDs now. Uh, there are not a lot of extras on these. They really wanted to get these out uh, pretty quick. Um, so there are hardly any extras. I've got a feeling that there may be uh, one of the revisitation box uh, sets, maybe with the two stories combining some sort of box set uh, at some point in the future. Anyway, here's a clip from three. I'm just going to mute you, Ken. We're just going to get a bit of background noise. 
Sergeant, the doctor is all right. They weren't killed in the explosion, if that's what you mean. Oh, thank heavens. For the simple reason that there weren't no explosion. What? Somebody tampered with it. My guess is it's this doctor fella. What rot, Arnold? That doctor's a friend of mine. Please, he's the one man that can help us. Oh, is he? Well, he weren't nowhere to be seen. He disappeared. Do you think the Yeti got him? No. What makes you so sure? I don't know. Just a hunch. Hey, wait a minute. Where do you think you're going? He may be lying injured. No, we'd have found him, unless you know where he is. I might. Take me to him, could you? Aye. Right, well, go on, lad. Slide through time and space? Not exactly slide. It's difficult to explain. It's not half as difficult as it is to believe. Your father believes it. Yes. But he seems to. And you met him, when was it, you said? In, in 1935? In Tibet, yes. You couldn't possibly have. You're no older than... You seem to know about the Tibet business. Why didn't my father tell anyone about this doctor friend of yours and his TARDIS? You're his daughter, and even you find it difficult to believe. So how would other people react? Okay, and uh, Mike, uh, um, let's know there's no extras on the Region 1 DVD releases. I'm just looking, actually, and I think, basically, there's only, like, a teaser trailer or something. that There's uh, virtually nothing. Um, Weather Fear, uh, available now trailer. That's the only one. Uh, coming soon trailer on the enemy of the world. So, basically, you're right, there's no wow. virtually no extras, yeah. I mean, just to, uh, you're hoping that there will be a, a uh, more expanded release later. I wouldn't be holding your breath on that because the the reason that these were released as they were released is sort of twofold. One is I think that BBC Worldwide wanted to try an experiment to see if they could generate more revenue off of putting it onto iTunes. And, of course, then uh, releasing the cleaned up version on DVD because the one to iTunes is not cleaned up. Right. I don't know if you call it, call it that recall. But so that that's forced some fans to buy it twice, really, um, and they were probably happy to pay for it because they want to support the whole notion of looking for these missing missing episodes, and you know, so paying twice might be justifiable, at least it was to me, in the sense of like a PBS fundraiser, right? You give money Bye. to the thing that you want to encourage. Now, the other thing that's happened, of course, is that BBC. Um, sorry, um, to entertain's contract with um, BBC Worldwide or BBC Video or whatever you want to call it these days uh, has in fact ended. Um, so these releases were all outside of the contract that to entertain had, and as a result, uh, you know, people like Dan Hall and all the other people who put together the extra packages are disemployed, as it were, from the BBC. You know manufacturing train um and therefore there are no extras because there's nobody to make them there's nobody under contract to make them um so i don't know that i would be expecting anything out of these unless you hear when that um somebody has been hired to make new features but i don't see that as possible because there's no you know it looks like the the optical era is over not that it is you know, in hiatus, not that it is switched over to Blu-ray, but that there's no sign that, especially in the UK, um, that it's anything but moribund. And so I don't think that it's ever going to another format, which would require a whole new round of 
extra features. I think that the extra features we have are the ones that we have, and that's all there's going to be. And, um, you know, maybe they might be able to justify doing a one-off renegotiation of a two-entertain contract. Um, But, you know, you got to think, for these guys that were in the contract, um, it's been a while now, and it was a very long haul for them, and a lot of them I know are sort of done with Doctor Who and don't really think that they have anything left in them in order to produce some extra features. But, you know, maybe they can do just a very local contract or very specific contract with some people who were maybe younger members of the to entertain team and therefore not quite done with Doctor Who, maybe they could pay somebody enough money to do a, a, an extra feature. But again, it would have to be all separately negotiated. So it's it's a it's uh, not that they were it's not that they were trying to rush to market or anything like that. It's just that they didn't have the infrastructure in place anymore. I, I, do, I do remember that, that there was always this plan to get every available episode that was still in existence on DVD for the 50th anniversary. That had been some sort of a, uh, right. you know, a plan, hadn't it? So, yeah, but, yeah, I, but I, think for, I think for To Entertain, they believe that they did that because for them, I think the last um, DVD was Terror of the Zygons. And when they delivered that in 2013, I think they felt like that was the end of their contract because they weren't expecting these new episodes to come up, you know, because they were not in the loop, really. Right. Um, so that's why that's why you have it. It's not it's not cynicism. It's not anything else. It's more like, all right. So all of a sudden, you know, the BBC has these extra episodes. What do we do with them? Uh, and one thing is, well, let's deliver it digitally and see if we don't get good revenue back from that. And that plan seems to have worked. I think. I think they're happy with the returns on that. Um, okay. But you'll notice too, like when you look at the the jackets for Web of Fear and Enemy of the World, they clearly are done by a different uh, design team, or at least under a different design ethos. Really, um, you know, put put up Terror of the Zygons, which is the last real one or last uh, to entertain one. Put that up next to Enemy of the World and see if you don't see, you know, some pretty obvious font changes and. And stuff, and I think you realize, oh yeah, somebody else did do this. It looks like to me, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, good points. Uh, let me just, uh, I'll let Jeff mention what he said in text in a moment. But just for Willis Girls' sake here as well, um, you know, again with the six episode story here, uh, the numbers actually built quite nicely here. Seven point two billion episode one, six point eight. This is on first transmission, of course. Uh, 7 million episode 3 then it jumps to 8.4 for 4, 8 and 8.3 so it holds it gains a million viewers within the course of the 6 week run let me play another clip and then maybe Jeff wants to just expand on what he's put in text how did you get in sir? Coburn, ammunition party got badly beaten up all the men dead, I'm afraid. Not all. Evans managed to escape. Evans? The driver. Oh, yes. Evans didn't mention any other survivors. No, well, it all got a bit confused. Driven into a side tunnel myself. After that, got a bit lost and then found this doctor. Yes, I was wondering when you were going to get around to me. Yes, well, the professor's spoken for him. We do know a little about the doctor already. I see. In fact, more than you do about me, eh? To tell you the truth, sir, yes. 
Doctor! Oh, my dear fellow, am I glad to see my you. My word, it is. This has <laughs> been a long time. <laughs> Professor, I'm told you know this man. Oh, well, I thought that was obvious. Well, if it comes to that, I think you. Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart, new CO. Oh. So you can vouch for the doctor. Well, of course I can. And what about this girl? Oh, well, she's on my staff. You know, lots to do, Doctor. Time's running short. Need to help. Uh, Captain Knight, I'll take him straight down to the lab. Now, come on, Doctor. You better come too, Victoria. Oh, so things are getting a bit desperate, but yes, I've got an idea. It would seem that the professor's in charge down here, Captain. Yes, well, he does have a job to do, sir. I think it's best to let him get on with this, don't you? Hmm. Yes, we had the suspicious uh, news reporter, but there, you know, the suspicion thrown on uh, Lethbridge Stewart there, you know, he didn't know the driver and nobody could vouch for him. So, um, uh, something else that you spotted uh, about the uh, Brigadier, Jeff? Well, yeah, in um, the Pertwee era, we, we had the Brigadier who was very much, um, he, he, he didn't quite believe uh, about the TARDIS being able to travel and time and space it, it just seemed like uh lots of times he uh that was a concept he couldn't grasp or didn't want to grasp he, he didn't believe it well here in the story he almost took the doctor at face value that the tardis could travel at least in space and get them out of the underground and they just seemed to be much more open to the the idea that it, they could do that uh, in fact he tried to go and get the TARDIS at, at one point in the story and it just seems like a shift in the character and I'm not sure why they went in that direction when they developed the character further. Right, right. And, and, and by the way, the, 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 the old actor that played that staff sergeant, uh, uh, I mean, he, play, he, he basically played that same character in everything he was in. He was uh, in lots of things... Um, uh, but he, he was one of the the, uh, the go-to characters, a little bit like um, a little bit like William Hartnell in the sort of sergeant major characters, uh, sergeant no, not sergeant major, yeah, sergeant major characters that he played. You know, uh, what they call them, uh, career career army man sort of thing. Uh, you know, spot a malingerer fifty paces, uh, much as uh, I think uh, the the brigadier would say. Uh, later on in his career, um, let me um, let me play. Um, I've only just two more clips, so I'll play another clip now. Just to see if Willis Girl wants to uh, come in on any other comments, and then we'll go to Darth. Strange, it's not picking up. The intelligence must be transmitting. I know why it's not working. Success. It's going again. Oh, that's marvellous. Hello. I'm sorry I'm being so long. It's such a big news job. Help you in a minute. There we are. Now then. Yes, you see, it's homing. <coughs> there we are. Fairly strongly. Oh, no, careful. I'll shut the door. Oh, damn it. The thing is, you're working. Never mind about that. Why? What's happened? We tried to get our stuff this door, but the fungus is there. Well, I'm not surprised. I thought the intelligence would try to hem us in. Yes, unfortunately, it's got into HQ. What? But don't worry, I've managed to get a fire door closed. Should hold it. I hope you're right. Come on, Anne, let's get to work. Doctor, mm. tell me this sphere of yours, exactly how is it going to help us? Well, the sphere itself, it won't. Hey? No, but it will help us to test the control box. Is that all? All? You mean to say you've wasted all this time? Just wasted? We haven't <laughs> been wasting our time. Well, I think you have. I must agree with the boy, Doctor. You don't seem to have achieved very much. Colonel, if you left us alone, we'd get along a lot quicker. Oh? Mm. Oh, very well. 
Come on, we'll come on, we'll leave them to us. Uh, it's lovely. It's lovely hearing those two <laughs> because again, I think that's lovely. Um, um, so, um, Willis girl, any any more rounded thoughts about um, the thing as a whole? I mean, were you glad that you um, you put your foot into the classic who ring, as it were? Oh yeah, I was very glad that I uh, watched some classic Doctor Who. I just have a question: Was the guy who played Professor Travers is he somewhere somewhere related to Deborah Watling? Because I noticed they had the same it's last a father. name. It's a father. Oh, okay. Okay. But we we should have mentioned that. that. We should have mentioned that. Yeah. Um, it had slipped my mind, but yeah, it it, it is. I think it's a father. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure it is. Because he's playing. He's playing. He plays a lot holy here because, of course, he meets the Doctor in the the, the abominable snowman one. This is supposed to be uh, forty years after that abominable snowman. So that's why he's sort of playing the irreparable old man uh, because. Uh, it's supposed to be the same character 40 years on. Okay. But uh, good pick-up. I'm glad you, uh, you you mentioned that and got us to, to mention it, yeah. Okay, uh, Darth, any more comments you want to uh, go on this story? I mean, I, I think um, a couple of people have said, and I think you've said it as well, that uh, maybe of the two stories, uh, the other story has been more insightful to uh to people who haven't watched lots of classic what about the um the first, i mean it's unfortunate isn't it it's the third episode that's the one that's the missing one where you know lethbridge stewart makes his first entrance we had a bit of a clip of it there but we don't actually see him live on screen as it were in his first appearance Well, I mean, we see his foot. Uh, I don't know if his foot counts in, in this right. too, uh, which is which is sad because it actually is quite a grand interest, and one imagines it must be at least in the fact that it is you know presaged by his foot, and the fact that you don't uh, think that he's going to be a good guy. I mean, he, it's made out to be a menacing sort of arrival, and I think it's interesting. The there there are two things that are sort of my favorite parts of this story. One of them is, you know, the nascent unit, of course, not called unit yet, but um, this, this specialized um, outfit under Lethbridge Stewart is um, really interesting. And it's a shame that unit, and I think this is the right word, devolved into what it became. It became, you know, essentially Lethbridge Stewart at the top and then Yates and then um, the Benton, basically, um, and it's so much more rich and, and complicated uh, in this serial, and of course, it's so much more pan UK. You know, the fact that you have a clear Welsh um, guardsman or whatever his position is, I guess, the private maybe. Um, I think I think just adds a great, and and of course, Lethbridge Stewart meant to be Scottish. Very clearly Scottish. Uh, and I think that the great thing about the find of Web of Fear is that it's a um, it's an answer to Terror of the Zygons, where you know, he appears in a kilt, and of course some mention is made of that in episode one of Terror of the Zygons, and he, he pipes up and says, well, you know, I, I am, uh, you know, obviously Scottish. I'm Lethbridge Stewart. Um, 
And I think to many people who had never really seen the Troughton era, never seen Invasion even, um, it, it was a little unclear, you know, whether that was just something that was manufactured for that particular story, as I say, you know, something that was written into Terror of the Zygons to more or less justify that ter- Terror of the Zygons happens in Scotland, or was it in fact a relevant piece of character um, history that had been established but not often remarked upon until it became relevant? And I, I think what Web of Fear Discovery has, has finally done is to tell us actually it's the latter. It, it is absolutely that he is uh, Scottish and that that is how we are supposed to take him, even though he doesn't really have a Scottish accent. And of course, that's quite possible. You know, I think we think from a distance, especially Americans think. You know, that in order to be Scottish, you must have a Scottish accent. And that's not really exactly true. Um, you, there are any number of reasons why you might believe yourself to be Scottish, but not really have a Scottish accent of any kind. Um, and so it's great that Web of Fear underlines that point. It's also great that Web of Fear introduces him so strongly um, you know, there's that great moment in, I want to say episode five might be episode four, where, you know, he has he's just taken over this. Well, OK, in episode three, he takes over the unit, right? He takes it takes over the reins of, of leading these people. So they don't know him and he doesn't really know them. He's read their files and stuff, but he's basically new man on the spot. Right. Uh, and. By the time of episode four, episode five, whatever, he loses most of his men. And there's that great moment of, of completely surprising, raw emotion that um, Nicholas Courtney delivers that really he doesn't get to deliver a whole lot in the rest of his career. And, you know, you feel the sense of loss of these people. And in the future, as we go through with the Brigadier, and this is, you know, one of the things that I, I was trying to point out in the episode of um, this show where we were talking about the death of Nicholas Courtney. Um, one of the reasons I don't like the character of the Brigadier is, you know, he doesn't seem terribly real to me. Uh, he is entirely real here because he, you know, expresses great um, consternation for and, and, and actual grief for losing these people he barely knows. But, of course, that's not really something that happens later on. He very casually accepts the loss of men in Three Doctors, right? I mean, all those people who were lost to the bubble guards or bubble gel guards, whatever they are called, um, you know, they're gone. All the people who they loses in in um, Ambassadors of Death, even. I mean, not too long from here, um, or Inferno. It, there's not a great sense of you know responsibility for these people, and you don't want them necessarily, you know, gush emotion all the time. You do want them to sort of learn something but you uh, learn how to be more stoic in a way but you do expect him from time to time to turn to the doctor later and say i'm just so damn sick of losing all these people this doesn't make any sense i don't understand this what can we do to fight these people and you know outside of a reasonable burst of emotion in silurians where he decides to take out the silurians against the doctor's wishes because it is, you know, for the protection of not only Earth, but, uh, you know, more reasonably his own people. Um, you don't really see this side of him, and it's so great to finally get what I think is a definitive performance um, 
even though it is the first performance, I think it is maybe the best performance he ever gave. Um, it certainly is preferable to even Inferno. There's just something dark and mysterious, and you wish that the way that the character had been developed would would have been along these lines where, yes, he eventually turns out to be working with the Doctor, but he's kind of not entirely happy about it. Uh, you know, and doing things like you played in that clip, you know, upbraiding the Doctor, saying, well, you don't seem to be doing that much. What the hell's going on here, guy? Get on with it. You know, I mean, that's the kind of relationship that you would have liked to have seen. And yes, there are moments of of spikiness between him and the third doctor and occasionally even as late as robot you know i have every you know respect for your your concern for ecology doctor but please get on with it you know um it's not as real as it is here i mean here it is you know i guess i need you but i don't like needing you and we'll just you know kind of keep each other at arm's length so that that part of the episode i really quite enjoy um the other thing i really like is as jeff has already mentioned the production design it it really is quite gorgeous i mean it is moody as everything and it's not just of course the the excellent underground um uh replicas and i think dave even though you're not from London, you probably, I'm sure, have been on the tube at some point yep. in your life. Indeed. And I, I think you would agree, it is actually damn good. I mean, it's not just, excellent. It's not just, hey, this is a reasonable approximation of an underground. It is, this is a damn good impression of the underground, right? When I, I mean, originally watched it, I thought it was the real Absolutely, underground. absolutely. I mean, the, the, the details on... You know, when when one of the spookiest moments, right, is episode one, which, by the way, episode one has been found for a long, it never was, well, it was lost in its master, but they recovered the um, um, tele-recording. Contact prints. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that was always one of my favorite Trouton episodes, period, flat. Just, you know, it's great from start to finish. The eating of the sandwiches in the... Um, the room, the mystery of what had happened to Salamander because you didn't have Enemy of the World at that point, um, the the gentle ribbing, uh, you know, of of Jamie saying you don't know how to control this thing, um, and then them ending up this what was this web about that was forming around the TARDIS and then they land and the uh, and you don't know where they are and uh, then you know they they have torches and they're going along and then. I guess it's Victoria, I think, who eventually says, what's this writing? I don't understand it. And then, you know, the doctor eventually should, and I forget which, which underground station is the embankment. I can't remember. Um, whichever one it is, it's like, Oh, Charing Cross. It might be Charing Cross is the first one. You might be right. Um, and it's just, a, it's just like, Oh, I mean, it's actually one of those moments in doctor who that kind of sends shivers down your spine. If you don't know what's coming, because it's oh, like, come go. Oh, Come on, it is uh, absolutely coming on. The, the explosives yeah. were laid at Ch- Charing Cross. At Charing Cross, yeah. And, and, that's a, and, and that's one of the great things about the episode. It is also, though, I think one of the, the weaknesses of the episode. This is a very London-centric episode, right? I mean, obviously, it is only about – and it's like super London. It is like central London um, specific. And I, I really think if you don't know what the, the – um, the stations on the central line are, you really don't get the urgency of the situation. Exactly. Because, you know, they got that chart, which, by the way, 
that's one of the great things about getting in Vision too is finally understanding the chart, right? Understanding the thing that that the unit squaddies are looking at because it makes no sense whatsoever in audio because all of a sudden they're just mentioning these these you know various stations and you're like, what the hell are they talking about? Why are they just naming? stations on the central line i don't get it just from listening to the audio but when you see it and you see that they had this you know early infographic up and and you see you know okay this station is blinking oh no now it's a solid color that means it's been taken over um you you understand it so much better but even then i think if you don't have a, a fairly good knowledge of the london underground and of the central line in particular i think that the the urgency of what's happening is a little bit lost on you. You know, it would be like going to, uh, you know, especially for American audiences, I think it would be like having an episode of 24 set in the Kiev underground. And, you know, it's perfectly obvious to people who live in Kiev what's happening as you name consecutive stations. But it's not at all obvious to people sitting back in, you know, Peoria, what the hell is going on? You know, you need to, it, it, since it is all about the progress of this, this web stuff, uh, you've got to really understand what's going on. The other thing that is very confusing, and I think it's even made more confusing by seeing it, if anything, is what is the threat exactly in this episode? Is it the web? Is it this foam stuff that we see at the end of episode two? Is it the web guns? That the individual, how, what is going on? And I don't think that is ever adequately explored in the episode as to what is, you know, how does the Doctor's TARDIS get this web stuff around it in space? That makes no sense. And then how is, how is that related to the foamy stuff that you see coming up? And that's apparently what the infographic of the central line is telling us is happening. And then how does that relate to the web guns that the Yeti have? It really makes no sense. And I, I don't, I've watched this thing so many times in, you know, non visual form in, you know, reconstruction. And now I've watched it, I don't know, four or five times in vision. And I still don't really understand the threat um and 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 in that way it, it is actually of a piece with the snowman which i think snowman is kind of equally vague i think the whole character except in abominable snowman i think that the whole character of the 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 intelligence is really confusing because it's so nebulous um and then you know the other thing that i think vision hurts this episode for is clearly the 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 Yeti. The Yeti look ridiculous. And they take you immediately out of the story because they are so profoundly weird. And I know that a lot of Doctor Who fans were really hoping for... Is it episode four was the one they want? Uh, wherever the fight happens between Proto-Unit and the... Um, the Yeti. That was the one that everybody was like, oh my god, I can't wait to see that big fight. And then you watch the big fight and you're like, what the hell are you talking about that made no sense whatsoever that is in no way even the equal much less the superior of the fight that you get you know in episode one of ambassadors of death or you know any of the season seven fights you know the one that's in inferno too you know all the season seven 
unit fights are way better than what this is. And it just makes the, the, the Yeti look terrible. Um, so, you know, there's some ways, I think, in which uh, the episode is incredibly helped by being able to see Vision. And then there are some ways in which I think it really gets pulled down because you see how terrible, especially, the Yeti themselves are. Um, the the other thing that is interesting about Vision, uh, which I just flipped out about, and I just, uh, I know I'm kind of dumb, but I do like to go through Doctor Who episodes and sort of see how close are they to the real world. And I, it's a dumb obsession of mine, but whatever. I do like to see little pieces of production design in the background of various shots to understand, uh, you know, what was life like at that time that this episode was being filmed. And one of the coolest things in the vision that I just shocked the hell out of me is in episode six, there's that powwow that they, there's that little lull right before the final uh, battle. And it's the point where the doctor sits down and he plays the recorder for what's about the last time, really. You know, everybody has this image from the three doctors of the second doctor playing the recorder all the time. And that's really not true. It, 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 it's all, it's really intensive in the first three episodes, kind of, when Ben and Polly are still around. And maybe even into the fourth story where Ben and Polly are. But basically, it's gone after season four. And then there's this nice little moment here in season five, in this episode, where the doctor you know sits down on the edge of the, the tube platform with Jamie and starts playing really a good song. Like most of what he what Troughton did with the recorder was not musically sonorous, right? It was okay, but it was really simple stuff. And and a lot of times it wasn't even a melody. It was just him in a sort of a Harpo Marx kind of way answering with his horn, more or less. But there's this really nice moment where he plays a song and plays it to some, you know, credibility. And uh, then they get up or whatever and they walk around and in the background, you know how the tube has all those advertisements on the wall, right? Um, in the, in the background, there's a, a, um, a movie poster for in the heat of the night, which I was just like flipping out over. Cause it's not at all mentioned in any kind of account of this story or whatever. But I mean, here's one of the biggest films of, um, 68 really. Uh, and, you know, it's just a great, great American film. And here it is in Doctor Who, in the heat of Sidney Poitier, in the, and you actually see the name, Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger. Uh, the thing you don't see, though, is the title. Um, they they carefully take that out, but, I mean, the poster is so iconic that you, you, know, you look at it, you're like, oh, that is in the heat of the night. Um, and, I, and for some reason, that just made me really smile. Um because you don't get that, right? You don't get all the time in Doctor Who, especially in old school Doctor Who. You don't get the, you know, sense of place. But the, the great thing about the production design on Web of Fear is it is incredibly atmospheric. It is absolutely spot on for London of that year. Um, and it's so cool for that, right? And it's sort of the same. Invasion is kind of like that, too. You know, Invasion has a certain 
indelible 60s vibe about it because of the costumes and um you know occasionally you see things in the background that are cool but web of fear man more than anything else it's almost made up so good in fact i think this is what happened it is made up so good that they had to go back and paint out the name in the heat of the night so that they they were not accused because it's BBC, right, of advertising something that was current, because it was in the theaters at the same time that Web of Fear was, or more or less. Um, So, I mean, I know that's a really minor detail, but it is one of those sort of exciting things that you know you wouldn't have gotten just by listening to it, right? It is something for which you are rewarded for seeing it actually envisioned. So that's really good. Um, the other thing uh, that strikes me about the episode is, of course, the way, you know, we have talked at length on this podcast about the qualities or lack thereof of Victory of the Daleks, right? Um, and, you know, many people have commented over time that Victory of the Daleks is essentially evil of the Daleks remade. And that might be true for, you know, some parts of Victory of the Daleks. But one of the very interesting things is how in Episode 6, at the conclusion of the story, it is almost word for word what happens to the 11th Doctor in Victory of the Daleks. This this sense of frustration that he feels is exactly the same as Matt Smith later feels. Um, because, yes... Technically, they won, but yet the great intelligence escapes, and it's exactly you know the it's I mean honestly the speech is almost the same word for word it's almost the same as that frustration that that Matt Smith feels at the end of Victory of the Daleks, and so again I think that this is one of these things where you know it informs your understanding of the new series uh, even though it is quite old. Largely because you have people like Mark Gatiss who are familiar enough with Doctor Who of the 1960s that they are recycling lines and recycling ideas. And and, and one almost imagines that that um, Mark Gatiss, you know, did a pulled a fast one here and really recycled Web of Fear, thinking well, there's no chance in hell that anybody is going to find Web of Fear, so they'll never know that I pinched this very obvious and major part of that plot line to put into my own um, story. And yet now we can look at it and we can say, oh my God, you really just stole that. Just outright took it. I mean, it's, there's, there's no ambiguity. There's no, I don't think there's homage there. I think there's just flat out theft of the end of Web of Fear is the exact same as the end of Victory of the Alex. Um, so there's a lot of really good things. I, I, I would agree with Jeff, though, that, you know, and, and, and it seems the wide body of Doctor Who fandom that probably um, Enemy of the World is my favorite, but the the cinematography, and I think we can use that word, even though they they probably would say in the 60s, lighting, uh, of this episode is so good. It it makes you, I mean, it is for some parts, especially the museum scene that where we're first introduced to Travers again and his daughter. Uh, I, I think 
it, it, the lighting is so good that it, it feels at times film noir. It really does, which I don't think you can say about much of 60s Doctor Who, much of any part of Doctor Who, but especially 60s where film noir would have been a little bit easier, one would have thought, because you're just dealing monochromatically. Anyway, uh, there's just something about Web of Fear that really amps up the effect of a shadow upon the viewer's sense of fear, which is clearly what film noir is. Um, and for that reason, I, I, you know, even though the Yeti are kind of crappy in terms when they actually get in the full light, uh, the the nature of this creeping terror in the underground is is still just genius, just flat out genius in terms of trying to scare people and to do it on a budget. It is genius. It is genius on the level of, uh, you know, Vashonarada. You know, in terms of trying to develop fear in a cheap, 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 cheap way, you got to think that Stephen Moffat might have in the back of his mind remembered Web of Fear and said, wow, you know, what was really scary about that was not knowing what was coming because it was all in shadow and thinking shadows are creepy in themselves and then extrapolating for it. He may not have done that, but you can imagine that that process, uh, that mental leap would have been possible. Um, and it's, it's, it's effective in ways that are, that belie the crappiness of the Yeti. Um, and I, and I think, I think it is, if it's nothing else, the great thing about web of fear is you can sit down and get totally absorbed in it and, and want to know how it ends. And that is not the case of other stories in the sixties. And I'm sorry, Dave, most story that, that includes Zoe are not like this. They're not like stories where, oh my God, here we are, Dominators. I've seen episode one. Oh, I must uh, proceed. I must proceed to yeah. episode two. I don't have any choice about it. I've got to go. No. You do not feel that way about the Crotons. You do not feel that way about the Dominators. You do feel that way about Web of Fear. So it's not, you know, I'm not on an anti Zoe campaign. And you do feel that way about, well, maybe episode one of the Mind Robber going into episode two. But I don't think, you know, episode three going into episode four, you care that much about. But. You know, by and large, the great thing about um, Web of Fear is its extreme watchability, um, and it's just it's it's a nice piece of Doctor Who history to have had brought back to us. But I mean, you do have to say it's it's the wrong Yeti story. <laughs> uh, cool, cool as it is, it is not Abominable Snow. Abominable Snowman is freaking cool. I mean, absolutely freaking cool. And even though, and and you understand the Yeti in that context, you know, Willis girl was like, well, what the hell are these Yeti? And I, and I understand why she's thinking that. Um, but in the context of the Himalayas, in the context of a, a monk's monastery, oh my God, it, it totally makes sense. And not only that, but, you know, in that monastery, you've got, you know, somebody being taken over. That's the other thing, you know, about the uh, um, great intelligence, as we've seen in the snowmen, um, you know, their MO is to take over some human and the human becomes their, you know, mouthpiece. And uh, it, you know, in the context of the, what we may call the, the Travers duology, that is both of the season five Yeti stories combined, um, I think it makes some sense um, 
that it makes sense that in the second of these stories, Travers is the one that gets taken over to be the mouthpiece of the Yeti. But it doesn't make sense by itself. Like, if all you're looking at is Web of Fear, it seems like a really chintzy, just standard sort of science fictional thing to do. And so, therefore, it, it doesn't really have any emotional weight behind it. But if you know that he was younger, and if you know that he had sort of an antagonistic relationship with the Doctor that eventually got all straightened out, and if you know the story of the Abominable Snowman and how he helped out with that, then becomes sort of tragic that he's the one that gets eventually taken over by the Yeti and used. And um, and the other thing, you know, knowing it in the context of Abominable Snowmen, you're like so much more appreciative of the strong daughter that he has, right? I mean, that makes – of course he would have produced a daughter that was this strong and this dynamic. I mean, she's one of the best – female guest stars in the history of Doctor Who, I think. Just absolutely great wit, written so well, uh, performed so well. She holds your attention every single line that she speaks because she's just with it. And you really want, at the end of this thing, for her to go with the Doctor in the TARDIS. You really want her to be... You know, forget about all these other people who might have been companions of the Doctor in the 60s. Forget about, um, oh, what's her name in Invasion? Um, I'm sorry, in Fury from the Deep. Uh, not Fury from the Deep, in the Faceless Ones. Um, Samantha, whatever her name was, that became an uh, Oscar winner who later became Queen Victoria. Uh, Briggs. That's the character, Samantha Briggs. Um, no. I mean, she was nice. She would have been kind of fun. Uh, but the this, this Travers' daughter in this episode is just just amazing. I mean, really, for 60s Doctor Who. I mean, this would have been, and again, Dave, with apologies for your love of Wendy Padbury. I mean, this would have been the replacement for Victoria. That would have been just amazing. Can you imagine seeing her going up against... Oh. Jamie yeah. and the Doctor. I mean, my God, that would be a powerhouse in a way that, yeah. you know, sometimes Wendy Padbury is, but a lot of times she's not because she isn't written that well. Uh, and she doesn't, you know, uh, she's not played as well. You know, she's not played yeah. as forcefully as this actor. That would have been just amazing. So, I mean, just to see uh, this episode gets high marks for, you know, a really strong female character who is not, you know, the villain, but who is just absolutely, you know, a teammate. And, you know, there is that wonderful part of, I think it's, I think it's episode six where she and the doctor are actually working out the problem. And you look at that, you know, in the, they're in a laboratory situation or whatever. And you look at that and you think, what the, what the hell was Barry Letts thinking was the problem with Liz? When you see these two characters interacting as well as they do um, over in a laboratory situation, you kind of think to yourself, you know what? That actually does work. That it's fine for a woman to know what she's doing in a laboratory. They still, she's still able to ask questions, you know, and the doctor is able to be dumb in certain situations so that they, they are, you know, equals of each other dramatically, if not in actual intellectual capacity. Um, and so it's like, it, honestly, that part of either episode six or episode five, I forget which one, is electric to me in the way that it just shows 
wow, you get the right actors together, and yes, you can have a totally confident woman, and you can have a totally confident man, and they are just sort of, you know, grabbing the attention, doing something incredibly geeky. Um, yeah, yeah, played by yeah. Tina Packer, we should say. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So lots of good stuff. I mean, just all up and down the line, but again, probably not quite as good or as interesting as Enemy of the World. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's good to have something that is this important to the history of Doctor Who, if perhaps um, of inflated reputation back in right. the archives. Right. Uh, let me uh, just stop you there. Um, the, um, of course, the Leftbridge Stewart wasn't actually going to play the Briggs. Somebody else was going to play that part, uh, and uh, he, he he stepped up to it. And, of course, uh, John Levine uh, is in the story uh, making his first appearance, but as a Yeti, not as uh, a soldier. I've got a final clip to play, and then uh, we'll go to Ken, who's there for some chat, and then we'll, we'll get um, a final thoughts from Willis Girl and... Uh, and Jeff. But here's the final clip from uh, episode six. I look like you're scared. That's understandable. But you've been in the army long enough to know that orders is orders. There's four people up there. If we don't warn them, they're for the chop. So? Four of them get in the chop? There's no reason to make it six, is there? Why, well, I don't feel it for one day. Come on, follow me! And 
the writer of the books, the eight-volume series, made her character's name Jamie Frazier. And that is an homage. Definitely an homage. Because she's not copying any stories, but she had seen uh, Trout and Doctor Who and was entranced with Jamie McCrimmon, which got her to become a master in studies of that history, part of the history, and led to this. So that's really wonderful in that. Um, I understand what they were trying to do with the Yeti. Um, they're not too good in this, no. But it, it's something we've seen like in Pyramids of Mars, something that is trying to be like a, a, a mummy or something that's trying to be something else. And it's the robot underneath, but it just didn't work technically with their budget, etc. But the the characters and the the attitude of of shadow and noir, as as Darth was saying earlier, is just so masterfully done in this. I really feel the hand of the influence of Nigel Neal, who never worked on Doctor Who, but it's always accredited someone who was always asked. And there's so much the feeling in many Doctor Who of of the Quatermass series, uh, popular from the um, late 50s on, where you have the interaction of the military and science and political groups all together. Um, And I I felt that, the great feeling of that in in this episode. Um, Really, really enjoyed uh, Deborah Watling in it. Really always liked Victoria. And... uh, course having her father in this makes an added treat that um I, I i'd give it a four i give it a four the the uh the yeti aren't uh very well done but the sense of the shadowy menace in the underground is incredibly done and they overcame budget with style and literacy and incredible cast and maybe a lot of it is nostalgia because that makes something grow greater in our memory. And, and I'm sure as kids, people are watching this being terrified, you know, when they finally see it. But such a joy that it finally came out. I do hope they okay. do something like animate the uh, the Telesnap episode. I would prefer that. Right. Well, we did talk at some point about uh, about the unlikelihood of that, but it's certainly uh, it, it, it's something that the fans, I'm sure, maybe even some fans will do that. Um, yeah. Some. Uh, okay. Thanks very much for Thank for you. coming on audio. We know it's a bit of a strain for you at the moment, and hopefully you'll be fully fit for uh, you yes. here. Brilliant. Um, now, uh, Mike and uh, Willis Girl have dropped off audio, so with the uh, Darth's uh, summation I think he's already given and uh, as I said you can catch more of my thoughts on Podshock uh, 289 uh, sorry 298 and 299 Uh, let's go to Jeff Jeff you have the pleasure of having the final word today Uh, oh let me just read what Cybob has put in text first Um, I love both stories uh, and happy to be able to see them and appreciate them more fully now uh, so, Jeff, you've got the final say, and then we'll wrap up, I think. Well, um, I, I think the the biggest joy for this story for me 
was the introduction of Lethbridge Stewart. Uh, always loved that character. Uh, every time he was in in the show, and to see the first time that he was in the show finally uh, was just a simple joy for me, and, and I just loved that we got this story back just just for that factor. Uh, uh, the set construction was was wonderful as well as we've already mentioned, and but again, Lethbridge Stewart just that that was the number one reason I wanted to see this story is to see his introductory story. And it was just fabulous for that regard in that regard. Um, and that's all, uh, I wanted to say about it. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up at that point. Um, uh, thanks, uh, Cybob Jedi justice, uh, who were not on audio, uh, and all the others. And, um, thank you, Darth. I'm assuming that you, you've said your piece and, uh, if everybody's okay, I will uh, find our little outro and say join us next week for episode uh, 268 when we'll be talking about series 8, episode 1. And uh, join us, please, live for that. And look out for, uh, for me, and who apologies for not making today. He's still hoping to, uh, in fact, uh, we're, for Mike's sake as well, listening, we're probably going to re, uh, record um, his report on uh, Orlando Nerdfest tonight to get that up uh, before we can start thinking about uh, New Who and so on. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for all the contributions. And let me play the outro. Bye for now. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.